You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. Sounds like a like a delicious snack for sailors. Like sometimes you want something tough and chummy to chew on out on the sea. It sounds like a roadside establishment my band hasn't checked out yet. <laughs> Welcome to Tough and Chummies. Yours sounds much more like a a big top kind of event than I think he was implying. Or you have a very different notion of what uh, what kind of stuff <laughs> well, they get I, into. I was I was thinking chummy like chum. Like when you're chumming the sea to like catch oh, yeah, sharks. Yeah. No, no, yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean? So I was thinking of like beef jerky that is like really hard to chew on and like, but it tastes and smells like chum, like something that sailors were like. They're like, I don't like sweet, delicious treats. I like things that are tough and chummy because I'm a tough and chummy man. Tough and chummy. It's, ooh, it's a perfect. tough and chummy man. That's good. That's tough. like the, the new Campbell's Chunky. <laughs> <laughs> Campbell's Chunky presents. Instead of football players, it's just old haggard pirates. <laughs> when I get home from a long <laughs> squall at sea, my wife knows what to cook me when she sees me coming in on the widow's walk. And by wife, I mean me parrot. <laughs> Yar! Welcome to episode 72 of the motherfucking podcast. Am I right? Is it 72? 71, actually. It's 71? I think it's 71, because oh, we missed one right, last week. because we were going to do it last week, and then we got a big, frosty, cold case of the fuckets. <laughs> yeah. Nathan, dude, Nathan Lund was the only guy I have sent the wrong address to somehow, and he's like, ah, I think I'm here, and then I get another text that's like, it's not the right place, and I'm like, oh, here's the right place. Come over here. He's oh, like- shit. You know what? Can we just, dude? If you throw up one hurdle on on a musician or a comedian, it's like you're done, you're toast. You have to create as little resistance as possible. For I'll this give to work it at out. least. I would give it at least two tries, honestly, myself. It's you know? it's like if you know someone isn't going to be able to make it to band practice, you don't let the other guys in your band know, because that's all they need to go. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. We should postpone. Let's uh, not do it. Uh, maybe in your dude. As soon as one of us can't do it, that's it. Everyone's like, fuck it, pajamas, let's stay home, and I'm always on board with that. That's what I'm saying. That's why I don't yeah, tell yeah. anybody. Dude, naps, yep. naps, a band that naps together. No. Th- okay. <laughs> no. This no. is the first time in my life where I have been on board with, like, saying fuck it. Like, for the most part, I've been the guy in the band that's like, no, we got to do this. Like, I'm, like, been the driving force, but now that, like, I'm a father... And I have like a six day a week job. It's just like, yeah, you know what? My back is hurting a lot, maybe a little bit. And I that couch is sounding good, and that new Wu Tang historical fiction series is on, and and I'd really like to check that out. Did you know that that's a historical fiction, by the way, Gordo? I I had no idea what to think of it when I saw it advertised. When I was I, first, I was like, I don't know about this. So. Okay, so on the same night, I tried to watch the new Dark Crystal series, and then 
the the Wu Tang series, and I started watching the Dark Crystal, and I'm like, this is some kind of bullshit reimagination, man. Like, I I don't like it. I'm gonna watch something else. And so then I put on the Wu Tang series, and I'm like, so are they connected? Is it a Dark Crystal Wu Tang series? Yeah, Dark Crystal is a prequel to the <laughs> Wu Tang series. So, <laughs> Holy shit. so I'm like. I'm like watching the Wu-Tang series and I'm like, wow, these guys had a dramatic and adventurous life. And then I, then the next day I found out that the Dark Crystal was actually a pure prequel, like it was a legit prequel. And the Wu-Tang series is historical fiction. Like they took the historical facts of their story and made it into like an action karate gangster movie. And so like, I was like, oh, oh I see. Okay. Yeah. So I was misled. Anyway, welcome to episode 71 of the motherfucking podcast. This is, of course, the official podcast of the International Power Rock Combo, motherfucking ruckus, from Denver and Chicago, respectively. I'm Aaron Howell. I'm Gordo. And uh, joining us in the studio today is, uh, I was trying to describe our relationship when, when, when we were talking earlier. I, I said, like, a casual friendship. Mm-hmm. Like there's that de- we're definitely colleagues and contemporaries, but uh, and for reasons we'll get into later, we haven't really stayed in touch over the last couple of years. But mm-hmm. but uh, but so I would say still casual friends, acquaintances, colleagues, and uh, and a guy I respect a great deal um, from the bands Chemists and Glacial Tomb. Please welcome to the show, Ben Hutcherson. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to have you on here, man. Like, I mentioned this in almost every episode, it's the perfect excuse for me to sit down and hang out and have a legit one-on-one conversation with someone that I'm interested in learning more about, someone that I perhaps would like to have more of a friendship or a relationship with, but, you know, people are busy and schedules just don't always work out that way and there's noisy environments and things like that and uh, and just circles don't intersect or overlap from time to time uh, like they should from time to time and uh so this creates the perfect forum to actually sit down and catch up and i've been wanting to catch up with you for a while so i'm really glad that you could be here ben hey thank you man the feeling is mutual i'm uh the last time i think that we really like aside from maybe you coming in and doing a show or coming to a show at three kings the last time I remember really seeing you outside of cyberspace was when we played together at Westwood Music Showcase. Jesus Christ, what was that, five that years was, ago? That was more than five years ago. I don't know, yeah. Because it was, it was early on, like I, I want to say it was Parker's first or second year in the band, and he was with us for six or seven years before he left, so... Probably, probably at least six yeah. years ago. 1978. Yeah, 1978. It's a good, good year. year. Oh. There are sometimes when I like to like delude myself and think that like the things that we're going through now are like stories that we'll get to tell in like a VH1 series. Like, oh man, 2016 was a crazy time, man. It was crazy. Like, oh man, I was like going to shows and like the guys from Chemists were there and you know Dave from Havoc was doing front of house for us and blah 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 and when in all actuality it's, it's probably just delusions of grandeur but um you have since we played that show together quite a bit has happened for you not just artistically but personally and i've got a ton of stuff that i i wanted to talk to you about 
and ask you about and get your thoughts on. And of course, we're going to take some tangential asides, like one that uh, that I'd like to take right now. Uh, and I wanted to run this by you. And I this has been like cooking in my brain since I saw it. And I didn't want to talk about it before the show because it it can ruin the conversation if I bring it up before. But did you see? Do you follow Wooks doing things on Instagram? No. Okay, so there's this... Do you know what Wooks doing things is on I Instagram? I have no idea what we're talking okay, about. Okay, so there's this whole... There's this whole uh, family universe of Instagram profiles, blank doing things. So there's like awesome people doing things. There's old people doing things. There's kids doing things. Uh, animals doing things. Like all these different pages that are just really, really funny or interesting videos or photographs that that these people basically curate and collect and, and put out on the internet. And one of their most popular ones is called Wooks Doing Things. You look, it, it used to be at Wooks Doing Things on Instagram. They put up an announcement today that their original account had been shut down and uh, they had to create a new account, which they have called The Festivalist. It's at The Festivalist on Instagram. And the impression that I got is they Instagram took down Wooks doing things because uh, enough Wooks found it derogatory. They found it offensive and they, wow. yeah, yeah, they, they, they found the term Wook to be denigrating. All right. Uh, I'm going to ask the question. What? Is a wook? You don't know what a wook is? I was thinking, honestly, I'm not trying to be funny. I was thinking wookies the whole time. I think that's where it originally comes from. Did, okay. did you grow up in Colorado? Like, are nope, you, I'm where, from Mississippi. See, I was wondering where you were from because the you've, you've got you've got the slight southern lilt in mm -hmm. there, and I was wondering where it was from. So, what part of Mississippi are you from? Northwestern, uh, about 40 minutes south of Memphis, a little town called Senatobia. See, that surprises me that you don't know what a wook is because the southern wook is, I think. Like Colorado has really, really strong Wook population. Strong, strong Wook. But I also think that the South has this like special kind of Wook. Do you know what I'm talking about, Gordo? The so one, time... I, I still don't know what it is, but also in Mississippi, if someone came up to me and said, how do you feel about Wooks? I would assume it was a racially loaded question because that just sounds like a slur that like someone from the next well, and trailer they, over and I don't and say I think that to be funny. A, and I, I, but, but, right. You know. You're like, so what do you right, think about Wooks? Right. It's like, I'm not interested send in send them your... back? And I'm like, <laughs> to what planet? Send them back to Boulder. The um, first time I recall hearing that term, though, there was a there was a festival called the Wakarusa Festival that was in my part of Kansas there where I'm from. Uh, and and a buddy of mine called it, oh, Wookie Research. Wookie and Research? I, and I was like, Wookie, oh, and I immediately understood what was going on there, you know, because uh, uh, the, the implication right. that these are all Wookies that attend this festival. Right. I want, okay, while, I, while, I'm, while I'm bringing Ben into the fold, can you do some research for me, Gordo, and find out the origins of the term Wook? Because I really want to know this. I believe I don't it comes know from sure. Star Wars, but See, I See, that's what wrong. I thought, too. So a Wook, so like you have hippies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then... A wook is like the most extreme hippies. Okay. Like a wook, like the really hairy, really furry, really dready, really like cartoonishly just like over the top, 
modern caricaturization of hippies would that you, we see now. Would you be interested in hearing what the Urban Dictionary yeah, says? Yeah, what does the Urban Dictionary say a wook is? <clears throat> uh, noun or adjective. A dirty, hairy, stinky, malnourished, dishonest creature <laughs> that often travels in packs with possibly and unfortunately mangy, multicolored dogs on handmade, all-natural, organic, hampelicious... <laughs> Or alone, wandering aimlessly around a concert, usually hippie music, quote-unquote, parking lot with a few seemingly more important than the music goals. Find as many mind-altering substances and cram them into their bodies as fast as furiously as possible. Get into the show somehow, don't lose the dog this time, and if by chance they come across unattended property such as a cooler, chair, backpack, or a beverage, it will then become their own. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. That's pretty perfect. And I... I you know, as you know, I work in an environment that is that is lousy with wooks around like when Dead and Co is in town or Fish is in town or, or Panic is in town. We get so I mean, I have nothing against any type of music fan whatsoever. You know what I mean? Like like we get some very wonderful sweet people who come in. I've developed through working there. I've developed an appreciation for a lot of jam bands and what they do. You know, I don't necessarily like the huge, long, drawn-out, spacey jams that all sound the same. That's just a matter of preference. I also can only listen to so much freeform jazz music. You know what I mean? But Wooks, I feel like, are a are a are a special breed. They tend to be the like I don't just find them relegated to what I would call hippies. Like there's the Wooks that don't even go to jam concerts. Like they just go to EDM festivals and stuff mm-hmm. like that. They're like, they're totally spaced out from frying their brains on drugs. And they're, they're like the, all the shows in the parking lot. Like, like there's, there's a really good meme, which is a picture of a Wook, just like nasty dreads and just like, you know, some hand woven shirt that he made himself or traded from somebody. And it just says, uh, hey, can I borrow everything? <laughs> Just a, it's yeah, it's a little beyond the hirsute man that's lost control. It's, right, it's, right. It's, it's it's beyond that. Right, and so I saw this announcement today, and I was like, I was like, man, this is like the the outraged culture has gotten to the point where even the wooks are getting upset like i wonder if i'm gonna get phone calls or like i i haven't gotten an email of anything that we have said on the show that is borderline maybe one i've got one i've gotten one comment over something remotely controversial that we've talked about But that was from somebody you knew even it was from somebody i knew it was from a friend of mine who just thought i made an irresponsible comment but i would not be surprised if this is the first time that just like using the term wook that I, I actually hear from somebody. Like, you guys probably get wooks at chemist shows. Like, there's doom wooks. I mean... There's metal wooks, right? Such a thing exists. I but, mean, you're just learning the term for the first time. Yeah, but even, like, thinking back, uh, you know... I mean, here we're talking about something that's, like, uh, one or two levels beyond, like, a crust punk, right? Cause, yeah. Because this... I, mean, I would like, say crust punks are like the wooks of the punk rock world. Oh well, I mean, if if we're including crust punks, then yes, there are definitely these <laughs> at Kimmy shows. But there aren't the the like braided shirt Birkenstock kind of. I'm not saying those people don't like our music. And please, if you are that kind of person, continue to like our music and yeah. pay for it because the cell phone bill ain't gonna pay itself. Yeah, and you're but, welcome. You're welcome but also, to come to shows. Uh, 
I do have this innate distrust of anyone that's wearing a drug rug or anything that resembles one. Um, and, Rightfully so. And I, would I say. taught in Boulder for fuck. However, how long have I lived in Colorado? That many number of years until the end of this uh, most recent semester. So like that distrust and distaste only grew exponentially every semester. Right. Um, I don't. I have a hard time believing that they would be organized enough to like <laughs> rally against it. And I mean, maybe they seem to be Do organized someone, enough to get a page shut down on Instagram. I mean, maybe that happened. Do you think that someone at Instagram like me was like, "Oh, this is probably racist. I don't know. Delete. Yeah. Fuck it. I'm not." Well, it, it might, might have it might something be. to do with uh, maybe a surreptitiously filmed person you know that was like hey i don't mm, i don't really appreciate my image being right. used and like fuck you guys anyway y you know what i mean it is the funniest profile i've ever seen in my life by the way next to drunk drunk people doing things drunk people doing things you can go down a fucking instagram rabbit hole and sit there for hours i found the same thing to be true on passenger shaming pa <laughs> passenger shaming that's great that's it's great. Aircraft passenger shaming. It's I, I highly recommend it. It's fun. Oh, so like pictures of people that have like taken their shoes off, put their nasty ass feet up, or there's whatever. so many, so much of that. Yeah. But also all sorts of other things, like you know, two people going into and coming out of restrooms. Right, right, um, right, right, like, right. Like uh, and like people that are. Well, trying, sometimes trying someone needs a hand. It. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you need an extra caretaker in there. Yeah. But uh, but the people that make their own tents. It's scary in you there. You know, that make their own tents. Their own I know tents, what you mean, but you know what I mean. <laughs> passenger shaming. Anyway, dude, when I when I was uh, when I was nineteen, I lived in a punk house, and uh, and you know, so it would be like multiple people sleeping in one room. And I had taken an old duvet cover and created my own uh, canopy over my mattress in the room, and I called it the Love Grotto. <laughs> this is a true story. I lived in the Love Jesus. Grotto. And somewhere, sick. And somewhere, <laughs> sick, bud. And somewhere there is a picture of someone who cast aside the cover of the Love Grotto when I was asleep, and I'm passed out on my side naked. And my balls are just like hanging out between my thighs. And it's just like, you know, when you see the like white rats in the pet shop and they've got the big red pulsating balls? Like, there's what? that. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. No. No one goes to the pet shop and looks at balls. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I mean, you can't help but notice them. The like, mm. the like albino rats that have the, can you say albino rats? The albino rats. You said rat big red pulsating. I was like, eyes. Uh, exactly. <laughs> No. Big red pulsating eyes? No. Balls. Big red pulsating balls. Like I looked like a newborn hairless rat. And then there's this like this halo of butt hair. Like I don't have hair on my ass cheeks, but there was like a halo of like hair coming out of my butt crack. And at this house, we all had pirate names. Like we all, we all gave each other pirate names. And my pirate name after that was Captain Red Balls because of that. That's a true story. Shout out to anybody who came into the Logan house and uh, the, 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 the Logan Street Pirate Punk's house. Anyway. We appreciate you being so forthcoming. Hey, man, I say so many things on this show that are going to come back to haunt me one day. One day my son's going to be like, Dad, I just binged on every episode of your podcast and uh, we got to have a talk about a couple of things. Yeah, 2019 was a crazy year, man. You'd see chemists out at shows. You'd see Davey Havoc. And I told everyone about my big, red, red glowing balls. eyes. My big, red, pulsating eyes. Anyway, 
So, um, but yeah, this uh, this Wook's doing things page. It's basically just like <laughs> this Wook's doing things page. It's basically just like pictures of people at festivals or like people high on drugs at festivals. And what I'm thinking happened is the same thing that happens on Twitter, where a very small group of people can get mad about something and they can report an individual and have them and have them deplatformed or or banned from the page. And it's usually just a small amount of people, but like the way they're like we were talking about um we were talking about robots screaming thing uh, screening things, robots screaming things. Yes, yes, now I'm back on board. Quit touching my keyboard. Anyway, like uh when robots are are screening uh like pieces of artwork that you put on and and like Gordo had a problem with some Granny Tweed artwork getting disapproved. And I originally thought that you were saying it was because of the artwork was a cat smoking a bong, which is awesome. But you were saying it's because the eyes aren't at the right level. I was going right? to say, it's re- it's probably, it probably has nothing to do with the bong or the green smoke or any of that shit. It probably has to do with the fact that the eyes are in the wrong fucking place. And we, we, we just had this discussion about, mm-hmm. right. about you know all these algorithms that are dominating our lives as but, artists now. But there are there are human eyeballs that look at those things and approve them. Like there's like a like a a a, a, sex, a secondary appeal process. Like when you kept sending it and sending it and sending it, the email that you got probably came as the result of a secondary screening process. Thank you for contacting us. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're reviewing your content right now. Over and over and over again. Like if you if you try and create an ad on Facebook and it gets disapproved because you put like the word fuck in it or or you put a word in it at yeah, all <laughs> or you say like leave the kids at home cuz we're going to have a party. They're like, "Well, you can't mention children in your ad." Like there there are people that like do the secondary appeals process. So I'm wondering if somebody who does not like being identified as a Wook like made a complaint and flagged some content and them and maybe a couple other people caused that page to get shut down. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Ben, in a very roundabout way. God, there's so much there. So much there. So much to unpack there. Uh, one thing that people might not know about you is you are a university professor, correct? Uh, what, uh, was is a better way of putting it. Uh, was? Okay. We haven't caught up in a yeah, while, no, so yeah, I yeah. don't know. Like, are you out of that field now? More or less, yeah. Okay. Uh, give it. Give us a little background about so what background you there, used to do. Yeah. So for 10 years, I taught uh, university students as a uh, teaching assistant in graduate school, as a graduate part-time instructor while working on my PhD at CU, and as a faculty member at a couple of different community colleges, I was an adjunct faculty member at um, CU Denver for a while. And in 10 years, I taught between online, fully face-to-face, and hybrid classes, about 160-ish um, sociology classes, everything from intro to social all the way up to uh, senior-level social psychology Oh, this classes. is going to be perfect. This is going to be perfect. because Okay, so your PhD is in sociology then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so I'm I'm an armchair sociologist, so I would as I would, many people are, yeah, as many people are, especially now, like armchair social scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, what led you number one to depart from that vocation, and number two, what the fuck is going on 
at the universities right now? Oh my God! I was like, that first one's a big question, and then the second one's even. We got plenty we got time, of time okay. man. We got time. Let's tell me well, about yeah, it. Yeah, we'll me... start with the first one. So, um, you know how when you uh, go to college and you don't know what you want to do? If you go to college, not everyone does. I I went to college. Um, I grew up pretty poor. My parents were hyper educated, but also poor. One of those things where like they went to school so long, they were like, "Oh, money, like whatever," um, and that was awesome growing up. Uh, I made a thing that sounded like a joke earlier about living in a trailer, but I grew up in a trailer. Right. So I went to college and was like, "You grew up in a trailer with a couple college-educated parents." That must yeah, have been. Yeah, I mean, an my dad was. Social he experience. just never finished his um, dissertation. He was ABD. Right. Um, while in graduate school for his PhD, I showed up. And he was like, ah, fuck it. I don't want to do this anyway. And I, I know that feeling. Right, Everyone right. who's ever written a dissertation or a thesis knows that feeling. It was just like, give me an excuse. It's like, how committed am I really yeah, to exactly. this? Right. Um, so I went to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I got most of the way through college and was like, oh, shit, I should have been thinking about this. Uh, I'm an English major. <laughs> what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? And my older brother is, um, well, now he's a statistician for the Census Bureau, but he was... Uh, getting his master's degree in sociology, and he was like, get a social minor, go to grad school on that. I was like, uh, fuck, okay, yeah, I graduate in like a year. Let's do that. Did that. Found that I really liked it. Mm -hmm. First time I was in uh, a classroom setting, found that I really liked it. Started teaching. Taught a lot. And that's probably the first answer to your question, what happened. Uh, when you do anything that you like too much, the bad parts of it get amplified, and the right. good parts, unless it's mostly good, the good parts aren't good enough, and that's what- Like playing in a band for your entire life. I mean, kind of, but I've been doing that even longer, and I still, there's enough good there. Right. Whereas with it's teaching, for enough. me, it, like, being in the classroom was the good, nothing else was good. Literally nothing else. Nothing else. I don't, like, I'm writing a dissertation now, which basically, I'm saying, I'm writing a book now, I don't like doing that. I don't like doing the research. I like doing the interviews because I talk to people about music. I don't like fucking what's writing. Your, what's your dissertation on? Um, it's an ethnography of the Denver Underground. So that's that's awesome. pretty awesome. So yeah, like I mean, I'm excited about what it'll be, but I don't care for the process. That's kind of the way it was with teaching. Where like I was excited for the small pieces of it, but fuck, man, like when you're when you don't have your uh, PhD, you don't get paid anything. So I was teaching. At one point, I taught 13 classes a semester. Just let that soak in. So a shitload of work. So you're, you're working your ass off yeah. probably teaching at the same, experientially, yeah. you're teaching at the same level that tenured professors who may be kind of like re resting on their laurels a yeah. little bit and not getting paid a, a tenth of what they're getting oh, paid. Oh, dude, right? fucking nothing. Like, it makes me sad how much money I have not made Right. Doing all the teaching that I've done. Simply so, because you hadn't done your dissertation yet. Simply I mean, that's because it. you well, didn't even, have that piece of paper. Even if you teach at a community college, they don't have the resources to pay you well. And right. most of them can't afford to hire you full time. Right. So if you're contingent faculty, I mean, $2,000, $2,500 a class, something like that, it's a minimum wage. Wow. Don't know if I'm supposed to say that number out loud. But wow. anyway. So, it's, is, it's so that's, that's worse than high school teachers are getting paid. Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, at D like, DPS is super underfunded. I have friends that teach at DPS that make way more money a year than I ever have. So do you do you know any, like, university-level instructors who are moonlighting as high school teachers <laughs> to, like, make, <laughs> make ends meet? No, but I knew a guy. 
I won't, I won't say where I was teaching. It wasn't CU, another place, who was moonlighting as a DJ at a strip club to make ends meet. Oh, wow. And he made more money each week as a DJ at a strip club than he did teaching than educating human yeah. beings. Holy Christ. And wow. Yeah. So, 10 years of that shit, and you just get, you know, your, your gears get ground down. The bureaucratic machine will chew you up. So it was all, it was all, it was all the bureaucracy of the administrative side. Like you didn't really have a problem with, with students. Like oh, you didn't nope, run... nope. Let's, we'll get to that too. Oh, okay. Here we go. So it, it is the bureaucracy. It is the not having a lot of say in what you're doing. I mean, like I got to pick my textbook. I mostly get to teach my classes the way that I would, but I had a lot of, to toot my own horn, a lot of accolades. Like I always had great reviews. So I got more or less free reign, but again, for a minimum wage gig. Right. So that sucks. But there's also been this paradigm shift where this isn't even true for just students, but across the board, college education is not seen um, in the same kind of light that it was even like 10, 15 years ago. Right. It is now an extension of the economy. You go to college so that you can make more money. Right. It used to be you'd go to college so that you could become a more... Well-rounded individual. Exactly. Right. right. You could you could be a, a human. People like you, you would go to liberal arts college so that you would have stuff to talk about at cocktail parties. Well, I mean, that's a pretty cynical way of putting it, but yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But also so that you could not be a piece of shit, you know? Right, like, right. No, so you, you have be a to take a comparative religion class, and you have to take intro to soch, and you have to take a foreign language, and like a lot of that isn't super applicable in the economy. But fuck, that means you know a little bit about Mexican culture, and you know a little bit about Karl Marx, you know a little bit about how cells work. Right. Now, and now it's just, what can I do to make the most money? Right. And so seeing that shift and the devaluation of teaching in the minds of the students, but also in the sort of broader discourse in the country, it ain't worth eight fifty nine dollars an hour. Right, yeah. right, right. And what do, what do you mean about the broader discourse? In the, um, the sort of, well, the argument that like universities are just uh, breeding grounds for liberal thought and... Uh, a fear of the real world, and we're just making these little soft-edged little uh, liberals out there that aren't ready for the world. Like, we're not doing that at the university. We're trying to toughen them up. Right, right, We're trying right. to explain to them how fucked everything is. It's their boomer parents and the boomers that we have in office that have totally fucked the economy and perpetuated systems of inequality that construct this straw man argument. They're like, oh, well, they just, they're not ready for the real world. You made a real world they can't fucking deal with, Right, man. right, that they can't survive in. And the thing that the university is supposed to do is then equip them to make sense of that world. And now we say it's, um, I, get all, I get all choked up and I get like fucking mad about it. Because like, I really believe in it. Right. And I don't now. Right. I believe other people can still do it, but like that part of me that cared snapped sometime about two years ago. And was right. Like, this is this isn't the way that I can do something in the world. Just playing, just playing heavy metal and and just work, just writing. Yeah, that's all I do. Just play heavy metal and write. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. Awesome. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of financial security in it, but uh, I feel better than I ever have. No, and but but I mean, you guys, you guys are doing. There may not be a ton a ton of money in it, but it's like it's like an all inclusive vacation. You know, like if you. <laughs> If you are able to get yourself in a position where you have access to resources and contacts that can get you in front of people who want to see you play and yeah. can and can uh, position your your art 
and can get you on tours, then you can you can focus on the task of just making your stuff. That's true, but there's also something about being aware that being a musician in 2019 is not about just being a musician, or at least not about just get on stage, play your guitar, and you know you can be that jukebox hero that Foreigner was. No, you got to do. Don't a, know why I went with a Foreigner reference. Like it's a no, perfect boy, reference. Yeah. Um, but why do you think I'm doing this podcast? Because you want to sing for Foreigner. Because <laughs> I want to sing. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't it's mind. It's a long audition. I mean, <laughs> honestly, yeah, fuck yeah, dude, I love Foreigner, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, but it's about everything else. So, like, I'm a musician, but that also gives me the contacts to write for outlets and do, you know, write-ups for album premieres or write the bio for a band's new album. Right. Or, um, I think I can talk about this. I'm going to talk about it, and then if I'm not supposed to, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I work for Kerrang! Magazine now. And right. And I do their in-house music for their podcast. That's awesome. So... Like that's a thing, and and yes, I'm creating music as a musician, but it's not like I'm you know sitting down like the next Chemist album. It's like cool, I get to write 30 second little transition pieces, and they should sound like this. They should convey these emotions. That's not what being a musician has historically been. So but you're it writing has to music be. for Kerrang. Yes, writing, recording, all of it, and then. So you're not you're not writing copy for Kerrang. You're oh, writing. Oh no, no, you're writing music for Kerrang. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sweet. Like just all like all because because there's probably a there's a market for specialized specialized transitional music or yeah. or, or bumper music and things like that absolutely and you're not gonna you're not gonna use Muzak for that on like a Kerrang podcast or something like that no well and also like the fees for licensing even something like Muzak are prohibitive for most outlets like right. you can pay me to create something that you can have forever for way less than you can license something that everyone else can already use. All the bumpers on this show are uh, rough mixes from songs off our new album. Uh, that's, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's a decision they had to make creatively because they were restricted financially because they don't just have all right. the money in the world. And then because they knew me, they were like, hey, would you be willing to do this? I sent them some sample pieces and they're like, fuck yeah. That's fantastic. So when it came time to make the decision to not teach anymore, I was fucking terrified because, like, I've never, I've never had money, but at least I had a notion that, like, eventually there'll be job security. And I was so disillusioned. The other part of this too is that, like, there's no tenure track positions in Colorado, so I'd have to take a job. There are like, not. I mean, not opening for someone who just did their PhD. Right. You would. So, you would be pretty far down the yeah. part, far down the trough. Before and so the assumption would... is that you will go get a job somewhere else and then wind up where you want to five, seven, ten years. Do down you the think line. that's because fewer and fewer people are going to are seeking out higher education? No, we actually have a shit ton of people going to college. It's that everyone's living longer. Faculty aren't retiring. Oh. And then. The discourse around higher education has implications for how elected officials vote for funding. So we have right. less and less money. We rely more and more on tuition, fewer and fewer hiring lines. So like my first year at CU, there was a hiring line open for, it doesn't matter, a faculty position. One of the professors in the department pulled up the list of finalists, more than 100 people that they were uh, for one considering job. for this one job. And these were people that had like, 20 publications. They already had tenure track positions elsewhere. Wow. Oh. Fuck. I don't want to go live, and this is not a knock against the state, but I don't want to go live in Alabama. Right. I don't want to, like... Oh, you would have had to go to an underserved... Uh, yeah, exactly. Underserved I mean, you, you would just go wherever you could. Right. You know, maybe you... 
maybe you get a cool job in a place you want to, but a lot of people just take the job they can find and then hope, okay, five years from now, I can go where I want to go. No, man. And then you just end up in an endless loop just kind of, because your life changes over the course of five years. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, your, your life changes in ways that you can, you can scarcely comprehend over the course of five years. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 the track I was on five years ago is like, if I, if I could go back in time and tell myself five years ago where I am now, it would be like, like, like I wouldn't even be able to comprehend it, man. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Well, and, and also, and so, like, if you're moving for a job like that so that you can set yourself up for the thing that you really want down the line, the thing that you want is going to change. Yeah. And yeah. even if it doesn't, everything else in the world is going to change. Yeah, exactly. There's no guarantee that job at whatever university opens up. And like, I'm not getting any younger. You right. Know? Like, I don't, I don't want to make new friends. I don't want to find a new place to live. Right. I don't, like, <sighs> you don't want to uproot your life just for, for a crapshoot when and, you already know what you'd like yeah. to do. And I'm fortunate that my wife felt the same way. We came out here like, cool, three, four years, we're gone. We're going to go New York City or Chicago or somewhere. And we like, oh, man, we love Denver. Yeah. Let's stay here. It's a cool place to stay. And that's how a lot of people feel when they end up out here. Man. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of these people coming out here, these wooks coming out here with all this legal weed. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The wooks were already here, man. Yeah, fair enough. They're just coming out of the woodwork. They, yeah. they, they were coming out for Red Rocks shows like since time immemorial, man. And the, wo the wooks move in mysterious ways. <laughs> they do. Ooh. Ooh. So, okay, so then speaking of your life changing dramatically over the course of five years. Wait, just real quickly. That oh, was yeah, the, yeah, That was the first part. Do you, do you, should oh, yeah, we, yeah, do yeah. we want to come back to the second part? No, keep wanna... going on the second part. I'm right, glad okay. you kept track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the question, what's going we on We need him to kids? come on every episode. He's good, yeah. <laughs> Let me just tell you, man, uh, I just celebrated six months of sobriety, and, like, Congrats. My, uh, thank you. My, my mind is still, like, fucking clouded and shit from the last 20 years, yeah. but I'm pretty good about recent events. Yeah. I uh, didn't used to be. I make it sound like I was like a crazy drunk. Just like I get to the point where my body wouldn't take it anymore. No, I got, I get you, and man. Like two glasses of wine, I'd be hungover the next day, and the hangover would keep me at home. Oh, it's awful. Like, oh, like fuck that. It's awful. You know, it. it congratulations, Thank by you. the way. And you're six months off of everything. Yes. Like, did you? Are you? Yeah. I hope you don't mind me asking. Did you do a program or did you just quit? No, it was just. Um, it was just a it's called of spontaneous quit. sobriety. Um, I make it sound like <laughs> that's a thing. I get that from. You a mean, it sounds like know. spontaneous combustion. I mean, like, it, it kind of. Honestly, it kind of was like a week before my birthday. Um, my wife and I split a bottle of wine, and I had like one or two shots of tequila. And I got up the next day and was so fucking wrecked, couldn't leave the house. Was just like sweaty and sick, and I had band practice that night. And I somehow got over to the Walnut Room at like seven thirty. Practice starts at seven. Threw back like two or three shots of tequila just to make it through practice. And I got home, and I was like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Did you did you work with a therapist or anything like that? Uh, not. For, I mean, I'm in therapy, as I think everyone should be. Yeah, I but, think everyone uh, should be, too. But no. Um, I mean, I guess in a roundabout way, we had already talked about it a little bit. My wife and I hadn't talked about it. And I was just like, I'm going to try it for a week, and let's see. And then it was like, well, I made it a week. Let's see a month. See, and I, after I, a month, I was like, I think I'm just going to do it. Just stick with it. I, I, had, I had much more dire circumstances surrounding I, I didn't I didn't do the program thing I did I did have a really great therapist and what it really came down to was a ton of identity work and a ton of like this is the path if you keep going this is the path if you change course mm -hmm. and it was a lot of that kind of work of yeah. like and and I I do smoke pot a little bit I do psychedelics uh, once in a while 
but uh, February second was my fifth year without without drinking alcohol or or, or doing hard drugs yeah. or anything like that. And um, so I was just, it, and that was something that I wanted to ask you about when you said you weren't doing uh, drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so, but we'll, we'll get back to that. Sure, I want to, yeah. I want to get into that later in the show. Cause so, I want to yeah. get more about your so, experience. So what, what's wrong with the kids? Tell, what do you mean by that? Um, I have, what I mean by it is I'll give you an example. Okay. Okay. It seems to me, and, and this is to call attention and, and granted you have far more experience like this cause you were actually in the trenches watching this go down. I am not a fan of identity politics. I'm not a fan of tribalism. I'm not a fan of teams and rules. I'm not a fan of politically correct rhetoric. You know, I am definitely not one of these these blowhards who's sitting there yelling about the goddamn liberals and whatnot, but there does seem to be a correlation between hyper liberalism mm-hmm. and uh and the the marxist postmodern types and the university systems and as someone who is in the university system i wanted to get your perspective beyond some of the things that i have heard mm-hmm. because i you know i like to have a, a, a balanced perspective on these sure. things and you know i can listen to so many podcasts and and read so many articles and see so many things in the news but I wanted to hear about it from somebody who has actually been in there and has dealt with today's student body hands-on. So so I kept the yeah. question pretty vague. Okay. Uh, I, ooh, where to start? Okay, uh, I think one thing that's worth sort of teasing out up front is how people behave online is radically different from how people behave in the real world. But it does have real-world implications. Oh, no, no, it, it absolutely does. Um, but we need to be clear then what the question is are we asking what is up with the sort of ways in which politics i don't mean like democrat republican i mean like socio-political um um action and thought get mobilized online versus how it works out face to face uh because that's one question about how the university sort of sits in this larger socio-political context but i think what you're asking is why are all these goddamn young people doing things? <laughs> uh, and well, it, it, it just seems it seems like there are a lot of young people, and and I would say that 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 young university students. It, it's not exclusively university students, mm-hmm. but they make up a large percentage of the people who are hot to have a fight. Sure, you know, to score one for their team. For their uh, for their ideology, and I'm curious if you have witnessed anything in your time in your particular position, especially in sociology. Mm-hmm. You know the type of students that are going to be drawn to sociology, the type of um, the type of faculty that are going to be in your department, who are going to possibly either be at odds with their own students mm-hmm. or are going to be facilitating that type the that type of ideological crusader mentality. Sure. Um 
again, I can only speak to my own experiences. The first thing I'll Which say is, is exactly what I wanted. I think, I think people get a notion that universities are these like hyper liberal Marxist utopias when they really are. They really are. Not. Okay. E- even at a place like Boulder, like even in a, and that's you, the thing is you were in Boulder, you were yeah. at CU. So we would we would expect um, there to be a particular kind of liberal student in Boulder, and what you tend to account encounter a lot is almost like pseudo liberal, um, actually like centrist thought. Right. So they like the idea, or rather, you'll see people proclaiming certain liberal views, often with regard to like the environment or food politics, for instance, which are good things to talk about. Those are important. But then they'll say really fucked up classist things like, I just think poor people should work harder. Um, right. And we don't tend to assume that the people who are, for instance, being loud on Twitter about X, Y, or Z have anything other than just super left politics. Um, there are certain vocal people or certain vocal groups that over, I don't know, that we tend to assume are representative of the larger left in America, when in reality right. they're a small, they're a small vocal they minority, and, and I, I'm not saying they're necessarily the same ones that are saying poor people should work harder, or I don't see what the problem with Boulder's housing policies are. When in reality, like they they exclude poor people of color, for instance. Right, right, right. Um, so the question then of uh, identity politics sort of works in with that, right? Like, first of all, what do we mean by identity politics? Do we mean just someone who's vocal about a particular thing? I mean. I don't think that there's been that radical of a change. I think it's that we have more platforms for people to talk on. Precisely. But there are always going to be some people in any number of groups that are super fucking passionate about stuff. Right. And most people- And they're going to want to talk about it the most. They are. In the 1960s, they got on boxes and yelled in bullhorns. Now they have the bullhorn of Twitter. And Twitter is such a horrible, wretched thing anyway. (laughs) Like, it is this scourge of, like, for so many reasons. It's, like, I, I don't- I don't have it on my phone. I keep it like right. for band stuff. I use a scheduler and I send that shit out. And I like I don't log in. I don't know if people liked right, it. Right, right, right. Um, Which is a smart move. Yeah. Uh, well, for a while I had Twitter on my phone and it was just like it was consuming me. Right. And I wouldn't really say things out, but just seeing the interactions between people, which goes back to my first point, which is that the way that people interact online is really different from how people interact face to face. I've seen people say the most fucked up shit to each other online and then be some kind of chill face-to-face when it's like, you definitely said you wanted that person's, you know, whatever, dog to fuck their Dire. mother or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think what that speaks to is actually not an issue with the university at all, but instead a larger sort of system of people winding up in their own little echo chambers where right. they don't see the connections with other people, they don't feel the connections with other people, and they don't understand the ramifications of what they say and what they do outside of how it might make a select number of people respond or it might make them right. feel. Um, and again, I don't know how different that necessarily is from 20, 30, 50 years ago. It's just that it happens in a different way and perhaps happens more rapidly right. than it ever has. Well, and there's, there's, there's uh, you know, even on a smaller scale, I think everybody has had the experience of being on the receiving end or... Uh, being the perpetrator of sending your anger out into the ether via text message, mm-hmm. you know, and there are certain uh, nuances to technological etiquette 
that we are only starting to master. Like, you know, you, you get on time hop and you see some of the stuff that you posted five, six years ago. It'll make you cringe. Sure. Some of the things that you were saying. And um, a, a converse point that I wanted to bring up with uh, the, the horrible stuff that people send out into space when you're talking about something like, you know, the term virtue signaling gets sent, gets, is getting mm -hmm. used a lot now. You see people who have their 240 character talking point down and they post that in a public forum. Yeah, that boom is fucked. No, nah, it's fine. Um, and they post that, but they aren't going to post the other things that they're saying when they've had a few drinks and parties. Sure. Like, I think poor people should just work harder yeah. or something yeah. like that. Like, they are only putting the things out into the world that that they have constructed and crafted and are in tune with whatever their social identity is. The problem I have with the idea of virtue signaling is that it assumes that people don't do that all the time every day. And they anyway. do that all the time. We anyway. are always trying to get people... Most of the it's time, we're trying to function. get people to think the best of us. I mean, in sociology, this is one of the first things we teach in, like, Intro to Social, the presentation of self in everyday life. Irving Goffman is a mid-20th century theorist who wrote that we're trying to control how people think of us, right. and we don't present them with everything about us. We never do. We know the things about us, and we hide that shit. We hide the dark parts. We hide not even the dark parts, but the... Uh, potentially discreditable parts of us. We always, you know, put your best foot forward. You know, you only get one first impression. All these aphorisms exist for a reason. The idea of virtue signaling just, to me, presumes that the fact that someone says something, you know, they express some degree of allyship, for instance, online, that they're only doing it for other people's responses or enjoyment. I mean, why do we ever say nice things to people if we don't totally mean them? Well, anth anthropologically speaking, there's the term, uh, what is it, uh, egoistic altruism? Mm -hmm. The idea of, like, it's a survival mechanism, that there's there's nothing absolutely altruistic about human beings. Like, we're all good, but we're also all evil to a degree. Sure. And it is essential to our survival to be able to to be welcome in the tribe and to have people accept us and to have people think highly of us. They, if we do that, we're going to get more food. We're going to get more resources. Mm -hmm. We have mm -hmm. a, a greater chance of procreating and on and on and on. So that term is used to describe a, a function that exists in all of us, but it is a particularly... Um, it, it, it's, it's particularly transparent, I guess, mm -hmm. in in the social media space. The other thing is that I think it gets applied disproportionately to anything remotely liberal in a sociopolitical classification. So if I get on Twitter and I say, I support Black Lives Matter, I can be called out for quote unquote virtue signaling. Right. But if someone gets online and says, uh, I think President Trump is right about Mexicans, we don't call that virtue signaling, but is that not the same thing just on the other sort of end of the political spectrum? Yeah. They're simply... You're throwing up a picket sign to show whose team you're on. Yeah. And I mean... So the, if the issue is, uh, well, I don't like that people do that. Well, we've provided, again, this wretched medium for people to do it, social media broadly, but especially Twitter. I don't know what it is about Twitter. Well, that, there are a lot of things about Twitter. But I don't know specifically why Twitter is such a fucking awful thing, so much worse than like Facebook or Instagram in terms of its propensity towards vitriol, towards herd mentality, towards echo right. chambers. Um, part of it probably is the fact that we encourage 
you know, like the democratization of the internet was like, everyone should have a voice on the internet. So everyone thinks that they're every Even thought. Even if they shouldn't. <laughs> well, it's like, you should, you should maybe have a vote in how things happen, but like, I don't need to know your every thought. No one should know your every thought. What do you think of the, what Socrates posited about, uh, oh God, what, I, I forget what the terminology used, but basically like Socrates and Plato both had this idea of, of not everybody should have a vote. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's yeah, a, there's, a, yeah. there's a term. I, I don't for know the it. term. Like, I mean, that's a slippery slope. I I think there there are probably nuanced arguments one way or the other. There, I'm like their whole thing was like there should be learned, like there should be a like a a voter base of learned citizens, and and the the lay person should not necessarily have a voice. I would say this in a in a world devoid of inequality, where everyone could have access to the same kind of every institutional resource, I might entertain that idea. But until we live in that world, then we are disproportionately affecting poor people, poor people of color in particular, and saying that because, for instance, in Mississippi, our poor schools are mostly populated by young black students. Right. It's not because black students have to go to those schools. It's because they live in poor areas. They don't have the resources to go elsewhere. And if we say only learned people vote, then these young minds that are not stupid, they are simply deprived of access to resources, don't get a say in how things move forward. The people do are the same people that have for the history of our country. So, like, my knee-jerk reaction is, fuck no. Right, right, right. Like, in, If in, anything, in, cut that shit off after 50. After 50, you don't get to vote. <laughs> it's like, in, unless you can prove that you are up on, like, the conversation, the present conversation as it's been going on. Like, like unless you can demonstrate that you are aware, that you have your... Did you have your finger on the pulse of yeah. what what the younger generation is is hip to? You know what your your question made me think of something else. I watched a clip of, uh, so apparently David Spade has a show again because fucking we needed that. Yeah, yeah. And he had on Bill Burr and Jim Jeffries, it's three white dudes sitting around talking about the firing of the guy from SNL. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I heard that story. And yeah. so in the interview, David Spade says, "Oh, you know, I shouldn't say anything as a former member of SNL." And the other two both say, "Well, it's outrage culture. It's cancel culture," and and, and like whether or not that's true. Two straight white men telling me that, like, this is the problem with the kids today. These do well, Bill Burr is in his 50s. I don't, Jim Jeffries isn't getting any younger. Right. It's like maybe the fact that this guy constantly called Chinese people things that I won't even say on this podcast. Right. Like, maybe he is actually indicative of a larger problem. And it's not that it's cancel culture, it is a messy way of trying to correct the course and saying that whether or not. Also, the idea that like SNL shouldn't have done anything, like fuck it, that's a private organization. That no, they're Warren allowed. They're allowed to do fire it. people yeah, from their he can show. Do whatever he wants, and he Dude, has done whatever he wants. If I get into an argument with a with a guest and I say something that a guest finds offensive yeah. at, at my job, my employers have the right to fire me for not behaving uh, uh, congruently with their Absolutely. their corporate values. Absolutely. Now, at the same time, when I heard about the the guy getting fired from SNL I was thinking about SNL's values mm-hmm. as as a as a program and I was thinking about what it used to stand for mm-hmm. and I was thinking about Frank Zappa being one of the first you know being the first musical guest on Saturday night live you know a a uh, patently politically incorrect artist mm-hmm. you know and it was part of what made him brilliant I'm thinking of Eddie Murphy, who 
Eddie Murphy's specials, if you've if you've oh, watched yes. them recently, they did not they age, don't age well. well. No, no, not at all. But at the same time, you know, like like I watch Eddie Murphy, and there's there's things that he says sometimes that make me cringe. At the same time, there's no denying his comedic brilliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no denying his influence on people like Dave Chappelle, who, yeah. even though Dave Chappelle said things in his new special that were that were cringeworthy, yeah. it was still incredibly entertaining. And it's his job as a comedian to test the boundaries mm-hmm. of of us as a society. You know, the new Bill Burr special, which I really enjoyed, but also had some things where he was deliberately trying to to jab the crowd a little bit, to get them to react, to yeah. get them to kind of take these really touchy subjects and get them out of our bodies, mm-hmm. get them out of our heads, and get us having a conversation about them. And when I thought about the the, the comedic tradition of SNL and I saw what happened, and I mean, to be fair, SNL hasn't been good in a very long time anyway. Yeah, I agree to disagree. I think it's better than it's been in 20 years. Really? Yes. Well. Right on. I'm I'm gonna have to catch up on some episodes of SNL then. But, uh, but to see that going down and to see the way that it was handled, because from what now from what I understand, is some of the things this guy was saying were said before the wave of ultra sensitivity had really come through. Is that true? I mean, so I can't speak to every instance because there was more than one thing. Right. And a lot of people, including Bill Burr and Jim Jeffries, that got upset about it, at least it seemed to be the case, that they knew about it, but they hadn't. I said I had to watch some of the clips of this dude calling Chinese people. Well, I, again, I don't want it because it would be an no, audio. I understand. Ben from Chemists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you, yeah. you know that word no, we don't call Chinese people? Over and over, the sort of onomatopoetic way of making fun of Chinese people talking the same way that our current president has done multiple occasions, like in the last few years. He didn't do this in 1988. We're talking like 2013. Right. You don't call. You you can't say that, uh, you know what, five years ago, I didn't know. Okay, here's a here's a question for you then. All right. And and this is this is just kind of going on a tangent off of that. This is something that occurred to me in a thought that I had. I pride myself on my ability to do impersonations of people, Mm -hmm. okay? And there are, you grew up in Mississippi. Yes. Okay? You have an accent. Mm -hmm. You have a way of speaking that comes as the result of your upbringing and your background, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. So, there is an argument that it is inappropriate to do impersonations of people where the impersonation includes aspects of them that are related to their background. Okay. So like like I I think Louis C.K. does this this bit where he talks no, about Oh, are you really gonna bring up Louis C.K. is like hey, a man. Like, yeah, yeah, it, look, like, let me tell you, I I his stuff worshipped at his altar for so many years and it devastated me. Like he was the reason I got into stand up comedy. I loved that dude. And then it's it's one thing if he like said something offensive, but as everything came out about that dude and what he did and his management did to sabotage those women's careers, like that goes beyond. Like I just anyway, I can't I can't fuck oh, with the oh, dude, but now, not, you can. It's it's fine, and I say that without judgment. Is is now is the sabotaging a careers thing? Is that true, or is that getting conflated with That's Harvey Weinstein true. stuff? Yeah, no. They, they, okay, like, it's, now it's, see, I didn't know that, and so I'm fine. That is established. Okay, he makes a joke mm-hmm. about it about how he lives in New York City 
and sometimes there are silly characters in New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he's talking about how as a comedian, it is inappropriate for him to do impersonations of certain silly characters in his neighborhood because part of what makes them a silly character is their background or their sexual orientation or their uh, their place of origin, like things like that. Now, do you think that those things are off limits? I definitely thought we would talk about heavy metal by now, and I'm so stoked that we're diving so deep into sociopolitical. <laughs> we'll we'll get to heavy metal. No, fuck it. There's plenty of heavy metal shows. Well, the first the first point that's worth considering here is power, right? Okay. There's an argument that comedy, not even comedy, art, is at its best, commentary is at its best, when it punches up. Punching up is hard. Right. That is, someone who's in a position- Like making fun of the emperor. Exactly. Right. right? There is nothing easier than being in a position of power, even if you don't necessarily have a ton of power individually to wield, uh, and swinging at someone who has fewer resources to defend themselves. So the idea of, whether it's Shane Gillis, Gills, whatever his name is, Louis C.K., whoever, Making fun of the way that, for instance, first-generation Chinese immigrants talk, first of all, is fucking lazy. Like, there's nothing clever right. or, or poignant about it. You mentioned Frank Zappa before. Uh, whether or not we agree with all of his politics, one of his arguments was good art has to be nuanced. Right, and, and it, I agree and with if that it's, 100%. If it's this blunt, just instrument being pushed through culture, then it's not doing what it can do. And do I you think, think that we've lost the ability to distinguish nuance as well as, as, as maybe we ought to be? I don't think so, because someone like Jim Jeffries, for instance, and I'm not saying, I'm not super familiar with his work. I've seen a few of his specials. He's pretty funny. He's, I mean, the stuff that I've seen is very funny. He also has some stuff that's really hard to stomach that's you know pretty anti-women, broadly speaking. Right. But as his career has moved on, one thing I've seen in his specials is the way that he will go back and sort of talk about those things. And he still is like working on the edge, but he's aware of the fact that discourse is changing and that the things that he said have to be reinterpreted in a different light. Right. Um, he's trying to make a nuanced... Uh, I might be making him sound smarter than he is. Sometimes it seems like he's trying to make a nuanced argument about the way that we talk about women and misogyny and sexism um, on the one hand, and then we are still continuously hypocritical of uh, our blindness to the lack of uh, women in institutional positions of power. So we say, don't say mean things, but also the glass ceiling is still there. I've seen him make that point in a few jokes. That's a pretty nuanced point, especially from a dude that drinks Budweiser and openly you know, makes fun of his son for having a learning disability on stage, right? Right, right, Or right. even the way that he talks about his son having a disability, like. I don't know if you've seen that one where uh, he finds out that his son has autism and like it's it's a pretty impressive moment where he realizes that also he has autism and that explains a lot of things right. about his life. I haven't seen that bit. Like it's funny, wow. it's offensive, but he's trying to make a point. Right. Getting in front of a crowd and doing a lazy impression of how someone sounds lazy Chinaman impression. I mean that's it. The kind like of thing lazy, you saw, yeah, lazy like in a Disney humor. movie in the 1940s. Right. There's nothing it requires no talent no skill, well, very little talent, very little skill, um, very little effort to do that. Right. And it's not contributing to anything. It's not making art better. It's not making art sharper. doesn't mean there's not a way to do that. I'm not advocating for it. I'm not saying there isn't a way to do that. But Oh, I tried stand-up a couple times. It's terrifying. Dude, I did it for five years. It was fucking horrible. It's ter- you did stand-up for five years. Dude, really? I, don't, I don't know why I did it. It's terrifying. I really it's, hated it's, myself at the time. It's really hard, and it's like... 
it changes from crowd to crowd. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you if you get on stage at a place here in Denver, a place like Three Kings or or and and if you get on stage and you say something where you're like you're trying to push the boundaries in order mm -hmm. to get a laugh, but maybe you are like you have to have your finger directly on that pulse of nuance or yes. the crowd will turn on you. And I think that actually gets to, for me, a more interesting point. It's a point that people like Bill Burr and Jim Jeffries miss. It's that, actually, have you seen the new Aziz Ansari special? I haven't, but I hear it starts with a full-on apology. Well, it's it's interesting because it's kind of awkward. He even acknowledges that it's awkward. Some people didn't find it enough. Some people just found it off-putting. I thought it was very well done, the way that he tries to handle it. And he's like, there's no easy way. He's not like, well, sorry about this thing. He's like, what did this mean to me? And what did it mean to be accused of right. sexual misconduct and that there was more to it than that? And what does it mean for how I think about myself? Like, like all of this well, stuff. Well, comedians are more than comedians. Yeah. They, are, they are modern philosophers that-, that Absolutely. That, that their, part of their job is to color the, the conversation. Yes. But uh, the point that he makes later on, which is the point I want to make here, is that for the first time ever, the past is always contemporary. Everything you've ever said and ever done can be held against you right now. Right. What you say right now can be held against you in five minutes. Right. That's pretty new. And so I think we tend to miss that mechanism when we talk about, um, you know, oh, things are too PC. Oh, cancel culture is real. It's the fact that we have this new technology. I mean, the, the ubiquity of cell phones, of recording devices, like everything you can say and do can be on YouTube for the rest of time. Right. right? And Aziz Ansari makes this point. He was like, oh, wouldn't it be crazy if any of you had ever said anything nice about R. Kelly and then it was on a video right. and like 10 million people had bought that video. He's like, ah, it's me. Like, how do we, I think there's this moment of cultural lag where we have this technology and people are doing stuff with it, but we haven't figured out how to talk and feel about what it means to be a person in that imperfect way that we all have fucked up thoughts, right. we all say fucked up things, but now we can't hide it as easily. I, I and and I've thought I've thought about this for a while, and I think that I think that a important step is destigmatizing our own dysfunction. If we could figure out a way to to acknowledge because the other thing is is and and we kind of touched on this a little bit is so much of the argument is being made between the loudest people in the room yes not necessarily the people who can sit down and have a measured have measured discourse about it absolutely you know no matter who you are and in, in in that discussion you you might find yourself relegated to the quote unquote intellectual dark web you know mm -hmm. what i mean mm -hmm. but i think if there was a way and and I don't know what this would look like, but if there was a way to to acknowledge our imperfection and and destigmatize the fact that we all have these these parts of us that make up what we consider to be a good quote unquote person, and then this part of us we all possess this part of us that that is our own dangerous violence and and and. Uh, contemptible parts of mm -hmm. ourselves and mm -hmm. we could figure out a way to have a, a a conversation of that now like i said i don't know what that would look like but i want to ask you something this is returning to louis ck okay just for you personally mm -hmm. just ben sitting right in front of me now this isn't by any means supposed to be what 
you think would make it easier for everyone else in the world? We talked about Aziz Ansari and the things that he did when he walked out on stage and how that impacted you. Mm -hmm. What would it have to look and sound like for Louis C.K. to walk back on stage and for you to feel that he acknowledged his his transgressions and and gave a, a what you would find to be an acceptable apology and a return to and I know I'm I'm really putting you on in, no, in that's a fine. tight that's spot. Fine. I've here. thought about this a lot actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What because, would it have well, to look so like? So he he had his, you know, he he's done a few comeback shows and what I would want to see, what I think a lot of people would want to see, is 180 degrees away from what he has done, which is to come out and make jokes about how, uh, oh, I guess I'm just the bad guy now. Oh, I guess women won't come see me. Fucking right, women won't come see you. They're right. afraid you're going to lock them in a hotel room and jerk off in front of them. Right, right. That's a thing that hasn't just happened to those two women. Women experience that shit all the time. Right. What I'd like to see, and what I think a lot of people would like to see, is for him to come out and be like, I did some really fucked up stuff. And, and I can't make that better. And I won't try to make that better because right. I did fucked up stuff. Here's what I have tried to do in the interim. Here's the ways in which I've, whatever, like changed how I parent. This is how I think differently about comedy. This is how I've tried to like maybe reach out to those women, which as far as I know, he never has. Like his management has just like blocked their opportunities at comedy festivals and in Hollywood. Like try to, try to, in like not like he's going to be friends with those women. Those women are fucking broken for the shit that he put them through but right. try to do something try not to make light of it there's a way to be funny about it maybe I don't know what it is I'm not a stand up comedian right 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 uh, it, it would take man. I established that over five years of open mics and shows I am not a stand up comedian there simply was, acknowledging it would be one seeing one that's, thing like simply acknowledging it and like then if you want to add in you know any kind of anything that he's learned about power imbalance or anything like absolutely. that would be a, an icing on That'd the cake for me the personally right yeah, and not oh yeah. well I guess I guess all the liberals out there just don't want me to do stand up comedy don't don't give See, me that shit yeah that's that's the easy way dude he way said out. a lot of offensive stuff in his specials and they like you don't have to love everything that someone does to appreciate their art he said things that I'd be like oh I don't know and he said some shit that like I was crying to the point of wanting to throw up I was laughing so right, hard right. it was brilliant he can be multifaceted and imperfect, and I don't want to harp too much on just him. I mean, for anyone, everyone's done fucked up shit. Any, Everyone. Any man doing stand-up comedy right now has is, is probably got some stuff in their closet. They're like, oh, I really hope that doesn't come out. Hopefully it's not that fucked up. Right. But acknowledging that and not just saying, like, well, aren't we all broken? But, like, saying, like, I haven't always been a good person right. is a thing that I've never seen a dude say. I can just end that sentence there. There's, there's, there's also, and, and I agree with you, and I was raised that if you do something wrong, you apologize for it. You acknowledge it and you apologize for it. There also seems to be a different kind of dynamic in, I guess, massive scale social interactions like that. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, if I wrong you and I apologize to you and I and I acknowledge the ways that I have apologized to you, we are likely to be able to heal and move on. Right. There seems to be 
a different effect when you're dealing with the masses, which is an apology and an acknowledgement can can kill you. You know, it can an, an admission of guilt opens you up for even greater consequences that that you might have experienced before. So I can understand the fear of going out and apologizing, but mm-hmm. to me, something as simply as something as simple as coming out and saying, I'm sorry, that would be that would like and you said acknowledge acknowledgement, Gordo. Coming out and just saying, I'm sorry, and here is specifically what I am yeah. sorry for. I know that that would go a long way with me. I know mm-hmm. that that would go a long way with a lot of very reasonable people. But again, we're dealing with the loudest, like loudest and often least reasonable people in the room tend to be the ones that are like there's controlling gonna, the dialogue. There's always going to be people that won't accept your apology, Any apology no matter what it right. is, if you're at a dinner party or yeah. on the fucking stage in front of millions of people. I mean, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. that's I think that's fine. He doesn't have to satisfy everyone. But he has to do more. Than, look, on the other end of the spectrum, my mama raised me to understand that, and she always told me this, sorry is a word that falls out of your mouth. Doesn't carry much weight. Right. You, wanna, you, wanna, you want to make things better, you show me how you are changing as a result of what you did wrong. Right. So, you know, as a little kid, if I said something like, oh, my mama's stupid, and she'd be like, you don't say that. Saying I'm sorry, well, who cares? What I would do is not call my mother stupid and acknowledge that she had value in this right. world. I mean, this is apples and oranges on a scale that I can't. No, no, no. But I, I think the same kind of thing. Structurally, it's the same thing. Stru- mechanically, yeah. it's the same thing. I think, I mean, if he wanted to do something demonstrable, like opening up a conversation about how in the entertainment industry, women still get fucked, literally and figuratively. Right. And he is the most successful stand-up, well, he was until Kevin Hart became the, like, the new uber comedian. But right. prior to Kevin Hart's ascent, or, as far as I understand it, he was at least the most successful in North America. I mean, he sold out Madison Square Garden multiple nights in a row. Like, no, Louis C.K. has he's arguably all this the power. Most, the most successful comedian. And, I mean, if he said, you know, we need to talk about how this is happening we need to shine a light on what's going on we need to empower women we need to put and, and that's a that's like a catchphrase but let's put women in positions of power more casting directors that are women more directors that are women more women that are in charge of booking comedy clubs and film schools uh film schools uh fi- whatever yeah film schools that's fine yeah you can be a director of a film school i mean like think about stand-up comedy in denver comedy works is run it has been run for a long time by wendy curtis and it's i don't think it's a coincidence that in a male-dominated field, having a woman run multiple comedy clubs in Denver, and they're generally regarded as some of the best ones in the country, it's not like, oh, because she's a woman, she does that. She's seen how fucked up all the other things can be. Right. She knows how fucked up that industry is, and she, as I understand it, at least always treats her comics very well. It right. is always very hospitable. I mean, lots of people record their live albums in Denver because they have such a strong fan base, because they come here all the time, because people like Wendy Curtis are supportive of it. It's a fostering for, an environment. Exactly, and not just for men, but for women as well. I think if Louis C.K. said, we need more of that and less of me, you right. need fewer fat white dudes up here talking about their dicks right. and more people talking about their fucked up experiences, which I think goes back to the question of power and punching up versus punching down. Louis C.K. can get up there and say whatever he wants. He has all this power. Right. But you, that's not very punk rock to me. It's not very heavy metal to me. Right. What is is when a, like a person of color or a, uh, an LGBTQ person or an LGBTQ person of color who's a first-generation immigrant who has all of these experiences that could have shattered them. And they find 
strength and motivation and they find a way to be funny and creative about it fucking I want to hear their jokes right um fucking I I know what the world looks like for me tell me what the world looks like for you and I think the same is true of film and the same is true of music like it people get upset about the idea like oh well we just have to what just seek out bands that have uh you know people with darker skin yeah because there aren't that many that are getting the attention of the press but i tell you what they're doing some fucking interesting stuff Mm -hmm. and because the limelight is not perpetually shown on them like they this is like a silver lining kind of thing they have this space to create new and interesting and exciting music well i think i think it is tipping that way though i think that we're seeing slowly again token representation is not it's important but it's not in necessarily indicative of do you do you think that's dismissive to call it token representation though because it's oh, got to start let's it's got to start the two. no no but that, that, that's what i'm saying is it's got to it's got to start somewhere that's a very good point you know you're absolutely right it's it's, it's got to start with someone sure you know and and to me i've seen this almost uh, like that there there seems to be a popularization of marginalized groups mm-hmm. okay we talked about this several episodes ago, like several episodes ago. We talked about the criticisms about major corporations getting involved in Pride Month. Mm-hmm. And my argument is it's like, well, welcome to the mainstream. This is like part of the process of ending the stigma of who you sure, are. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's 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 almost like you need to have this early on token representation where you yes. have and again we're three white guys sitting around in a booth yeah talking about this stuff we really we're not experts in the field in any way but i like i i, I feel that it needs it, it's got to start somewhere but it's True. part of the conversation that's it, it, you it know. and that's that's another thing too is i think that i think that i think there's a, a, a there's a tendency to in the the heightened emotional state and with the people that are the the loudest but not necessarily most well-informed people in the room there is a tendency to go you're not part of the conversation because you're caucasian and you're male but i want to be part of the conversation i want to learn i want to understand you know i want i, I saw i saw uh, have you watched um chelsea handler's new documentary that she came out with nope i mean it it definitely has a lean to it that's a little heavy-handed, mm-hmm. but she does this part where she goes to a poetry reading. Um, it, it's it's more than just a poetry reading. It's like a, a spoken word group mm-hmm. put on by one of the universities in, in New York, and the audience is predominantly black. Mm-hmm. And she comes in and she's like, hey, I'm doing a documentary about white privilege, I want to understand it from your perspective. I want to know what you're thinking. Like, from what I observed, she was sincere in her gesture to come in and try and learn something. And a lot of people are giving feedback and commentary. And then one girl in the back of the room, you know, makes the comment that she's like, I'm actually embarrassed to even be talking to you because even bringing in your camera crew here is an example of your white privilege and da 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 and all these different things. And all I could think is like, Man, she's making an effort. She's coming in to have the conversation. She's she's coming in to to at least try and to vilify her at the onset to me seems counterproductive. And I understand that there is there is anger and justified anger. 
but at the same or is it or is it a good point well it, it also it also seemed to me like she was like it was rhetoric well look here's the question would Chelsea like Handler have gone in and asked those questions without a camera crew that's a very fair point and I think that, that but she's also that's in what a position that young woman's going after she's like you know she is in a position of power and and I'm not like and it, can it's, bring it's, that look, to the it's public rock in a hard place in that moment right right um and again you're not going to satisfy everyone is there more good that comes from filming that conversation and getting it out there or is it to be very cynical a way for Chelsea Handler to get more content out on Netflix to get more money I, like, I, I mean or a way to or a way to is it a personal vanity project for her to, to bring up the term virtue signaling yeah. again and she even used like, the term herself you know to so talk I about. mean and I can't speak to her motivations but right. I, I want to go back to one thing you said which I think is really important which is asking to be part of the conversation instead of presuming that we are because we have been dictating the form and content of the conversation you know forever and when we ask people of color we ask people in marginalized populations please tell me what it's like to live in this country live in this world tell me about your experiences not because i then want to uh turn around and tell people about how uh, you know, woke I am because I know this. I understand. But because yeah. I want to be part of that, and I I want to de- increase my capacity for human empathy and understanding. I think when people do that, the vast majority of the time, people are go- the people on the other end of that conversation are going to be incredibly receptive because nobody's been asking, nobody has asked black people what it's really like to live in this country, you know, on a broad scale. I mean, even if we're doing it now, it's only starting. But it's never been a conversation that white people across the board have had. Yeah. Some people, scholars maybe, some politicians, visible people in the media. But your average people in the Midwest have not been thinking, I wonder how different my life would be if I was black. Do you, I, you don't think that conversation's been going on? Like I, I, I feel like that conversation has been going on with increased spread since, you know, for, for the last, God, uh, 50, 60 years. Like and now we're living it. We're living in a time where we have mass media, and that information is so easy to connect. That's true. And 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 my my concern is that we're walking this tenuous line between like like genuine curiosity and becoming informed, and then the blowback from quote unquote woke people who are trying to get one up on the board for their team or who are engaging in discourse is some sort of competitive sport. Like you and I are sitting here having a conversation and I'm completely ignorant and I can Oh, and what I people can't see is that, that we are fucking fighting. God, we're ah, fighting. God. Punching each other. It's the well, silent stabbing. But but it's very easy for me to get into my own echo chamber and yeah. try and and try and soothe my own guilt and soothe my own shame and soothe my own self-loathing by Exposing myself to infor- information that that reaffirms and galvanizes what I already thought, what mm-hmm. my perspective mm-hmm. is. And sitting down here with you and having that conversation where you're presenting ideas that maybe I didn't previously subscribe to or mm-hmm. I thought were rhetorical in some way. You know, we're, we're, we're able to have this discussion. Sure. But then again, we're three white guys sitting in a booth having this conversation. Um, I think that there there is... I know personally I experience fear around asking questions that I am legitimately curious about. There is fear around seeking out those answers from 
the broader mind out of fear of recrimination of some sort, out of fear of of being attacked or piled on by people who are just trying to be in the woke club. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my first thought is it's pro- it's probably I just, justified I, fear. Well, one. no, I was going to say, it's, it's probably like a handful of white liberal people that are going to be the loudest uh, accusing you of not being intersectional enough or interrogating enough. It, again, in my experience, if you ask a person of color, like, what's what's this been like for you? So, for instance, when I, um, for so many times when I was teaching, whether it's intro to social or like an upper division class, and I'd ask a question because race would come up in any class. You know, I know what it's like for me to walk these halls as a white man. But if you're comfortable doing so, I'd like to know what it's like for you. And lots of students would say, oh, no one's ever asked me that before. These are juniors, seniors in college, these places that we assume are bastions of, of liberal thought. I'm surprised that no one asked them that before. And, you know, there might be people trying to you know, speak broadly to their experiences on their behalf, but they're like, this is what it's like for me. And sometimes it lines up with the narrative and sometimes it doesn't. And there's something that's very meaningful for them about seeing in this case, a white man at the head of the classroom saying like, look, I don't have all the answers. I would like you to help me here. Mm-hmm. I've never had a student say, fuck you for even asking. Right. No. And, and that's that. That's another thing that and, and, and this is actually a perfect segue into something else I wanted to ask you. about, Sweet. Which is you're not on social media anymore. I mean, you're largely not on social media. It's funny anymore. you said I just turned my shit back on like last night or this morning. Um, so I could sell some stuff in the Denver Music Gear Swap, but otherwise, no. Yeah, because that was honestly how I kept in touch with you for a long time. Was it was just kind of like Dude, that's true for a lot of people touching base on yeah. social media. Okay, first of all, what are you selling? <laughs> yeah, right. Are you selling I'm, some gear? The, the gearhead wants to know. I, uh, I mean, I, after man, this, we, we will talk term. about the stuff that I have for sale. Uh, I, I mean, it's some really good shit, man. It's hard to get. You know what I'm saying? It's that it's that real strong overdrive game. Is it an overdrive right game? Yeah, no. I mean, Gordo loves to talk. We have gotten into the Sorry, gear porn. I, I completely derailed this conversation. No, we, no, you didn't it's, at all. It, it will you didn't not turn all. into oh, a stomp box for him. So, so that's no. the bonus content for the paid subscribers. They can find out what overdrive. <laughs> hey, for our Patreon <laughs> subscribers, yeah. go to Patreon.com/slash/mfruckus to hear the gear porn section of the. No, we have had several gear porn conversations on this show, haven't we? Yeah, we. Especially have, we when have. Tony was on the show, man. Tony would like love to talk to Gordo about gear stuff. It was a digression, yes. Um, no, but I wanted to ask you about that because I, I recently. So I don't, I don't know if you're aware. My brother passed away uh, about a month ago. See, I wasn't because I don't have social media. Right. I missed out on a lot of so, people's things. I'm very sorry to hear that. So, well, thank you. But um, because I got so tied up in organizing the celebration of life and mm-hmm. busied myself with that, I, I don't think. I gave myself adequate time to just be sad and tired. Mm-hmm. So over the past few weeks, I've just been sad and tired. Yeah. And I had, uh, we just recently did a show at the Bluebird and uh, we, we opened for Judah from Italy. And mm-hmm. it was one of those situations. We were talking before you showed up. Uh, I work with this guy who plays drums for 10th Mountain Division, which is a a rising jam band. Okay. Like, they're kind of a mid-tier jam band. And uh, he tours a lot, and we were talking about what he calls his Alaska thoughts. 
which are, and I'm sure you've had them, and I and I know Gordo's had them because we've talked about it at great length. Gordo and I've talked about it a lot, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and we t- we talked before we got on mic about the person who suffers the most in the band is yeah. generally the band dad, it's generally like the dude, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. is generally the dude. Yeah. And the three of us are probably the three guys who suffer the most in mm-hmm. our bands, right? Mm-hmm. And we've barely talked about your music, and I do want to get into That's it. That's fine, but. Uh, My music speaks for itself. I don't have to say that. <laughs> no, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, well, and I mean, in so many, so many music podcasts, it's really like, so what'd you do to make this album? Yeah. Cool. Got any tour plans coming up? Yeah. Run on. Now, uh, but what I, so, it, and, and this is all leading up to this where I started finding, and I've been finding this for a long time, where my social media addiction and the social comparison that goes with it, especially Mm -hmm. creative social comparisons, you know, seeing what havoc is up to seeing whatever fucking Reed is up to, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's speed wolf or overdose or Mm -hmm. whatnot, or seeing what you're up to or other contemporaries of mine, you know, watching them succeed or seeing what I've perceived to be as, as my own failures, you know, having a blinders on and having a short mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. to what's really going on. He called it, this guy I work with Tyler from 10th mountain division. He talks about his, his Alaska thoughts, which is where he starts getting really down on himself. And he t- starts talking about like, man, I just need to sell my drums and go move to Alaska and just start over and do, do, do. And I started getting, because I was dealing with so much grief and we went and did this show, and we opened, and we were the we were main support. We we're the only ones on. Mm-hmm. We got a forty-five minute slot. It was great. You know, we did our show as we normally do it. There was a bunch of technical problems that happened that that made the show less fun. But what really made it uh, challenging was the fact because we went on so early. Standard thing. Yeah. Gone at eight o'clock. People are trickling in as you're playing. Sure. And we probably capped out at about 50 people in the crowd. And, and you know, it was like only 117 people, you know, tickets sold. Mm-hmm. And, and we do a lot to promote the band. And we invest a lot in it. We've done a lot of things. And I felt very defeated by the experience. Sure. Compound that with the emotional state that I was in compound that with the fact that judo was the best live band i have seen in a very very long time like they blew fucking doors off man like if you get a chance to go see this band live like they're one of those bands that was so good i felt bad about myself you know what i mean like <laughs> you know when you see those bands that you're just like fuck yeah. this like, oh, God. and i, I even i even told uh, tenda the singer i was like man i wonder how many bands are opening for you on this tour and just going, I quit. And he laughed. You know, he was a, he was a very sure, yeah. he was a very sweet guy. He was a cool dude. But after that, I went home. I had a couple days where I was just feeling kind of rotten, and I sent a message to the guys, and I was like, "Hey, I need a break." You know, I know Ty's dealing with getting into the new house he bought. Mm-hmm. You know, Tony's doing blind stagger stuff. You know, Logan's got a surgery coming up and and isn't going to be playing bass for a while anyway. I'm not going to be managing the socials for a while. I'm going to delete the apps off my phone. I just I just need a break. Mm-hmm. And and it is it's felt good, you know. I mean, I'm I've still been dealing with anger and resentment and sadness yeah. and all these different things and dealing with 
the the issues that are already present, but without having my brain blown up mm-hmm. with pettiness, I would say is is the hardest pill to swallow. Is yep. is the thing that is most difficult is just seeing the nastiness that people throw on each other, the the petty things that they get upset about, the the the, the thirsty people that are just on there, just like, and I'm one of them. You know, just grasping at validation and like, and so I wanted when I knew, like when I knew you were coming in today, I wanted to talk a a little bit about what led you to move away from social media more. You know, you mentioned briefly Twitter is, of course, a trash fire. Yeah. But what what would you say your experience has been with pulling out of social media and what motivated it to happen? I mean, one of the things that you touched on there that's really important is that it is an addiction. Um, uh, the way that our brains handle the constant stimulation from right. social media, it, it not ju- I'm not just saying this like off the top of my head. Like, there's so much research there's that's come out in the last research, five years. Yeah. It's like it 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 has it, it, the way that it affects the brain is not unlike the way that certain drugs affect the brain. Right. With uh, you know the drive for pleasure, and when it's introduced at a young age, like we are breeding you know lifelong addicts. So. Knowing that, like being in the academy and knowing that this research exists and still using social media was part of my life for years. Where I was like, well, this is fucking bad for me. But anyway, what's everybody else up to? Uh, it really coincided with um, my mental health just bottoming out. Um, with so, oh, fuck, it's 2019 still, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so three years ago, my father passed very suddenly. Um, the next year, my sister killed herself. Um, and halfway through this tour, one of my best friends killed himself. I am so fucking um, sorry. And dude. so those first two events, like the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people, and th- I, I say this without judgment, is to post a, a tribute to your, your loved one or whatever. And anytime I started to do that, I was like, why am I doing this? Most of right. these people never knew my dad. And the last thing I want is people calling me and texting me for the next fucking month reminding me he's dead like I know he's dead I run that constantly right. my sister died and I was like I definitely don't want to like tell people it. and I mean the downside of this is that some people found out a year or two later and they feel bad or they're like oh I feel like I should have known it's like I didn't fucking tell anyone right um, but when those things happened and I started thinking about why I had this almost just subconscious desire to post and get kind of shallow support not which is not to say that when people text or call that they're just doing it but it's they wouldn't do it if they didn't know and that's fine they're not coming to your house and bringing you food they're not like it's for me at least it wasn't going to do anything but make me feel worse right and as that was the case i started thinking about why do i use this shit at all right why do i i mean from a super uh you know just utilitarian perspective what could i do with that time how much time do I spend every day? It's several hours. Oh, it's it's, it's several hours it's a day. Yeah, all day, every day. You know, you're, you're sitting at the doctor's office. You go a minute. Well, let me just. Uh, you know, what's somebody doing online? What are these new companies putting out? And I, it, it's sort of like with quitting other drugs. I was just like, let's see what happens if I don't. Right. And I do still have access to the band accounts. I I manage that, but I do most of that through scheduling. I'll check in periodically because sometimes, uh, you know, for whatever reason, maybe a company's trying to get in touch with us through social media or the labels needs me to do something. But only having access to the band accounts, none of those accounts follow anyone. You know, it's like each right. one follows like 20 people. 
well, you get tired of seeing what your record label's doing all day, every day. So that helps sort of keep it at bay. And then I found that I just had more time and more resources for like figuring my own shit out. Right. Like as I did that, because um, I mean, I, I got off of Facebook before I quit drinking and drugging and, and everything. Uh, and then I, I was like, fucking Instagram's just constantly seeing other people who are like in better shape. I started really back to the gym in earnest about five months ago. And I was like, everybody else is in better shape. So I don't want to. Uh, uh. Right, right, right. Or right. like uh, friends of mine that play guitar would you know post shred videos and be like, oh, God, I'm never going to be that good. Right. They're not doing it to make you feel bad. They're doing it for the same make, reason. They're that doing you're it doing to make it. themselves feel good. Exactly. And I was like, I can't. I just got to drop out of this race. And I did. And I felt immediately uh, an overwhelming sense of anxiety because I was like, oh, God, everyone's going to notice that I'm not there and they're going to think that something's wrong. Nobody thought I was like going to hurt myself or anything. They're like, oh, congratulations. Or, or, or that, or there's the concern. Like I had the concern that, that, like there was a part of me that was feeling so bad. Like I've often had the Alaska thoughts. I've yeah. often had the like I want to quit thoughts. But this was the first time that I really had the feelings of like I don't care about my band anymore. You know? Yeah. And there was that tinge of fear of like what if I pull away and it completely the little bit of glimmer that we have that we've worked for completely shrinks out of existence. Mm-hmm. There's there there has been that fear, and and I will say to the to a point that you men- mentioned earlier, I did I really appreciated the support mm-hmm. that I got from people when I made the announcement about my yeah. brother. I really did appreciate it. We had a huge outpour of support. It was a beautiful thing. I got a lot of calls. I got a lot of texts. I got a lot of Facebook messages and mm-hmm. and, and comments like that varying degrees of the relationship. Yeah. You know what I mean? There is the feeling of being a leper a little bit. And there is kind of that like support hangover that yeah. comes with it. Um, and then there's also the realization, like the thing that I think made me the saddest was there was that almost 48 hour hot news cycle of my brother's passing. Yeah. And then Everybody else has moved on, and my family and I are still fucking heartbroken. Yeah. You know, like, I I work at the place he used to work, and I've been hallucinating, not hallucinating, but vividly imagining sure. him working in the kitchen and us, like, arguing back and forth through the window. We never even worked together. Yeah. But I've been imagining that. You know what I mean, or or these flashes of the the day that they found him, and we went there, and yeah. you know, things like that. So it's like, it's still there, and now, and there's that almost like timer in your mind that is like, how long am I allowed to talk about this mm-hmm. before I'm just like bumming people out? Yeah, you know, how long am I allowed to talk about this before people roll their eyes and go, Jesus Christ? Right. You know what I mean? And so that that has been a major downside of it. But but yeah, so like I did I did get rid of I did get rid of just the regular Facebook app. I mm-hmm. do have the band's page on there and I and I put Instagram back on just so I can post stuff and keep that active because yeah. I do 
you know, I do want to go on tour and I want to play shows. Yeah, yeah. And an unfortunate... You have to find that balance. Well, and an unfortunate side of it is we have to be relevant. Exactly. In order for that to happen, especially a band like us, who is really still climbing in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and really still trying, you know... We have a label, but it's a smaller label, and and we have not gotten to the point where offers are just falling in our lap. Sure, you know there are not people that that are paying for our albums, so we have we have a business to run. Yeah, in order to make it so that we can tour and make records and play music mm-hmm. together. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. One but, thing I want to say uh, about your experience too is that I think both of these are super common uh, for people to either. Well, often to feel the desire to do both, to both like totally withdraw from social media or from the world around them, and also to like please someone give me something. I need like, some comfort. When when my dad died, it was very sudden, and it like it broke me. I I went into this, uh, I, my um, psychologist um, or therapist, whatever she'd prefer to be called, uh, later diagnosed it as a dissociative fugue state for about six months. Where I don't have memories, like I have snapshots. But like there's video of me playing shows like flying like we did uh, a show at St. Vitus in New York. I don't remember doing it. Wow. I remember doing a lot of things. But the little bits that I had, I knew that I was like, I have to figure this out on my own or well, and with like, you know, professional help before I can start reliving the trauma of people asking like, well, how did it happen? And oh, I you know, wasn't he just here for your wedding and all that? And like, it's like, if I can't wrap my own mind around it, then it's going to break me over and over and over again. Right. So, I mean, by the time I told more than like five people, it had been almost a year. And for me, not having personal social media, like pulling that out of me constantly gave me the time and space to sort of figure out like, who am I in the wake of losing my father? You know, that sort of thing. And also to then channel what little energy I did have into more creative endeavors, like writing music or just writing in general or just trying to figure out how to teach, you know, when right. I don't like know how I'm getting to Boulder, just kind of come to in Boulder. I'm like, oh, shit, okay, I guess I'm going to go be a professor now. Right, right. Um, it, it just it allowed me to allocate my resources a little bit better. And so the way that plays out now that my brain is a little bit better uh, is that I have these patterns now where, oh, cool, this is the time every day when I can sit down with a guitar and do I have projects? Then let me work on those projects. If not, let's you know rough out ideas for new albums. Let's start right. polishing up things. I, the routine is important. Exactly. And I don't – that's time that I would have spent dicking around on – you know, whatever, Facebook, right. Instagram, whatever else. I had to make rules for myself before any of this even happened. Yeah. Uh, there's there's an online kind of guru teacher guy. I don't know if you know who Brian Johnson is. Not ACDC Brian Johnson. This is a different dude. The, uh, yeah, wait. The op- optimize.me is his website. Oh, no, that's not. I was thinking of, um, well, it doesn't matter. I can't even think of the guy's name. So, no, I don't know who that is. So, he, uh, and, and I used to follow him a lot more. I've, I've kind of gotten into some some different ideas recently. But one of the things that, that he would teach is he would talk about, like, he would talk about like building your masterpiece day mm-hmm. so that you don't have the opportunity to get distracted by these things and having digital sunset and and like I haven't been the most consistent in it, but I have I have a routine where at least I have my morning figured out where I get up every day at six or seven in the morning mm-hmm. with my baby son and we hang out 
and I meditate and we play and we do whatever we need to do. And then yeah. he goes back to bed and I pick up my guitar. Yes. And I learn stuff or I write stuff mm -hmm. or I sit down and I work on the comic book. That way, even if I get distracted by things the rest of the day, even if the rest of the day is shit and I fall off, at least I did those things every single day. Absolutely. At least I built in those consistent habits. And I, a thing that I think is really awesome about that, um, first of all, like seriously, congratulations. I cannot overstate, but as someone who has had to do this as well, like learning how to reconfigure your day and your mind and your life decades into your life is something nobody tells you you're going to have to do. Yeah. Um, there's this assumption that like, oh, you get to adulthood and it's fucking you just coast until that midlife crisis. And it's like, no, it's always kind of a crisis. You're always just treading water. So figuring all of that out is is incredible. And I, I think a lot of people have a hard time getting to that point because they're unwilling or unable to acknowledge the fact that they have things in the way that they can do something about. For me, learning to meditate was a huge part of it building a morning routine where I don't wake up and check the news on my phone or even look at my phone yeah. other than to turn my alarm off. I get up, go downstairs with my dog. Like, well, one of the dogs, I let him out. Then the other one comes downstairs. I let her out, sit down. I'll watch something stupid on YouTube while I have breakfast. And then I go to the gym. Right. And I don't know where the second part of that thought was going to go. Cause we've gone on so many tangents <laughs> that like I'm in my own Dr. Seuss world in my no, head. No, right no, no, no. That's the way it always goes um, on this thing, man. It's great. There's but a yeah, lot. There's a lot of happy surprises that happen. Yeah, on this yeah. Show, but man. I mean, I think uh, the the question then of like, how do, you, why get off social media? Why avoid all of that kind of stuff across the board? You also have to acknowledge the fact that if you're in a band or you run a business, well, a band is a business. Uh, you run other businesses, whatever. Like, you have to play that game a little bit. And if you say, like, I'm going to quit social media entirely, you're setting yourself up for a different kind of failure where you realize you've been um, preventing your whatever it is from being as successful as it can, and that sucks. But it goes, again, to the point of, like, having digital sunset, of saying, this is the time that I will do this, and I will do it in these very, like, cold robotic ways, right. and I will not engage. Right. Someone sends a message and they have a problem with an order or, like, a merch shipment got fucked up, that's fine. But, like, I... I, I People are commenting on this post. I don't care. Oh, I won't. I won't. I will no longer in, engage in discourse on uh, on social media. Yeah. I just I just don't do it. I will talk to just about anyone about just about anything, and that's why I love this podcast. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like I'll sit down one on one and have a discussion with you. Like the conversation we had for the better part of this episode mm -hmm. was something that could have easily turned into a dumpster fire on the internet absolutely on, on it on it like in a public forum it could have easily turned into something very ugly i remember uh several years ago after charlottesville and i've mentioned this on the on the uh podcast before i am a i am a committed um i'm committed to anti-violence mm -hmm. I know that we have evil inside of us. I know that we have darkness, but I am committed that everyone is is born good and born evil sure. to a degree. And that nobody became a malevolent monster overnight. Sure. I am committed to that idea and I am committed to this idea that that everyone suffers and we are all doing the best we can with the information available. 
And when Charlottesville happened, I posted something along the lines that it was basically like, I refuse to give in to hate. I refuse to give in to anger. I refuse to participate in this, the, the catastrophizing of the world. Like this is, we are seeing a magnified version of what is going on. I, you know, and, and I sent out a blessing to, um, what, what, did, what was the word that I used? I said the, uh, I, I, I said, it was, it was basically something to the point that was basically like, I wish for the end of suffering for the people who have been harmed as well as the people who are ignorant and have done the harming. Sure. Like the victims and the perpetrators alike, I wish for the end of their suffering. And the Wooks aren't going to like that at no, all. No, they're not going to like that at all. And it was, it, it, as, far as, as far as I was concerned, it was a meditation on um, loving kindness. Mm-hmm. You know, is this Buddhist perspective of just like the people who are doing these awful things must suffer so much for them to feel like this is their only option. And I got torn apart. All of my most liberal friends Mm -hmm. just put me on the spit. And I spent the entire day arguing with dozens of people, you know, um, and I saw it happen with with people around me, too, you know, where I saw people who were trying to express their sincere feelings around the movement mm-hmm. and would get this, you know, this fair amount of support and love. But then there would be like people who just like put them on the spit and just wanted to have a fight. And it was after those things kind of went down when the the tide of civil discourse changed sure. a little bit that I stopped participating in in open discourse and public forums like that. And it actually makes me think of the thing you asked earlier. Are we capable of nuance? And we are, obviously. You and I are having a very nuanced discussion right now. Um, but the form of technologically mediated interaction is one that prohibits nuance. Right. But it, th- I, again, I don't think that that's even necessarily radically different than how human interaction has played out for a long time. The aphorism about a picture is worth a thousand words exists because you can talk about a picture, you can experience a picture in a particular way, but if you spend all of these words talking about it, you'll still miss something. No, you're missing And if our interaction is relegated to you say something, I say something, and there's no sort of nat- natural, for lack of a better term, back and forth, like a conversational form like we're having Well, and now. I can't read your your the cues on your face. Like if I- Absolutely. You know. Um, and so I think there again is an instance of, I'm not often that optimistic, but I'm trying to be optimistic here that I think we as a society can and hopefully will catch up to that where hopefully the technology continues to evolve as well. But we, well, we just haven't learned how to use it. Well, we haven't learned how to use fucking anything. God, we're still just a bunch of... Monkeys. Oh, we're just a mess, aren't we? <laughs> we're a bunch of wooks. When, well, <laughs> Whoa! Uh, Gordo. I don't think you can use that That word. is not cool. I am deplatforming you from the show. It's okay. I'm a wook. <laughs> I have, oh, it's oh, okay. Oh, my God. He takes his hat off and dreads. It's, just, uh, <laughs> it's okay. I, I have a very good friend who's a wook. I have dinner oh, with Wooks oh, all oh, the you're time. Like, you're like, um, um, I, I hate saying the word. I feel like um, it's going to come out like, actually, it is actually a racially loaded thing. Follically challenged. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> Fuck you guys. No. Follically challenged is the next 
punk super group here in Denver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're follically challenged. Uh, well, how long have we been going, Gordo? Uh, we we have <laughs> seven hours. Uh, we <laughs> we have one hour and fifty one minutes. Holy shit. Well, let's tape. let's uh let's take a quick break and then um we'll come back and I wanna I wanna actually talk about music because I do I do want to get I I need you to fill in the gaps of what happened over the past several years that has gotten you guys to where you are because last I last we played together we were both on the Westwood Music Show like, like ten a.m. on a fucking Sunday yeah and now, <laughs> and now you guys have experienced this like meteoric rise and it's like we're just not allowed to play Westwood Music Showcase anymore so I would like to get some of the gaps filled in on that <laughs> sounds um, good when we come back and uh, yeah let's go take a quick break. Quick shout out to our sponsors. First of all, our most venerable nave and aerial sponsor, Matula Plumbing. Matula! This Plains, Illinois shit rolls downhill. Don't be at the bottom. Your number two is our number one priority. Your shit is our bread and butter. Angie's List Super Service Award winner back in 2011. The only year that matters. The only one. The only one is 1-1. One, 1-1 one. <laughs> one, one is the only one. Uh, and, uh, man, Jerry Matula, that dude will wear the booties for you. So, uh, make sure if you're anywhere near just Plains, Illinois, and you need plumbing done, uh, call up Jerry Matula. He's in the yellow pages. <laughs> the yellow pages is still a thing, right? Probably in just Plains, Illinois, anyway. Evergrove, Evergrove Studio in Evergreen, Colorado. State-of-the-art, solar-powered recording solar studio. Solar-powered, solar-powered. And, man, you can't beat the location. They just, did a, uh, they just did a little remodel at the space, and I cannot wait to get in there and record some new stuff. Um, I don't know anything about equipment, but it all looks real nice, and the lights are pretty. Shiny. Shiny, quite shiny. And uh, you can control the lights with an app, which I think is pretty pretty spectacular. Uh, plus, the know-how, the expertise, and the friendliness of uh, Brad and Jenny and their staff there. Um, and it's beautiful. It's right in the shadow and or Black Mountain region of Evergreen. Gorgeous. Completely gorgeous. Like, there's almost no cell service. Like, you have to get on the Wi-Fi there to even make a phone call. I love that. It's great. Or to, or to spend the day wasting your time on Facebook. Or as we learned from Ben, upload your stuff to later... And uh, new sponsorship, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yes, maybe. I'm, I'm going to be looking into that for sure. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be looking into that. Uh, yeah, go up to Evergroove, make a record, hit them up about your next project. That place is color. Uh, Mutiny Information Cafe to South Broadway in the heart of Denver, Colorado. Books, records, uh, live events, coffee, cereal, and nobody has a larger selection of Torini syrups. Nobody. Uh, did I say comics? I saw them in person. I saw those Torini syrups in person Yeah, on, on Saturday. It's a full wall of Torini syrups. Like I want to say in the episode we did with Matt and Jim, they told me how many different combinations of flavors there are. Yeah, there's there's a shitload. Like there are tens of thousands of combi possible combinations. They should come up with a punch card or something. It would end up being like a punch Bible. 
Like, if, if you do all the combinations, you get a free Torini soda something. I don't know. I, they got pinball, too, live events, and uh, they started doing podcasting down in the basement. Uh, they really fixed up that that space nice. It looks really cool. The books really contribute to the acoustics. What were you going to say, Gordon? I was going to say I missed I missed what I, I really wanted to see the uh, Future Days, the Can Tribute Band played there Saturday night. I really wanted to see, I couldn't make the it. The what tribute band? Can. You know the band Can? Uh-uh. Oh, dude. Well, I, never mind. That's a whole other fucking thing. Because I love obscure tribute Check bands. out Can. I do play in a guy. I Man. do play in a band with a guy who is in a morphine tribute band. That is fucking sick. Did you go see them, Oxycodone? Yes. Yeah, they're really yes. good. So uh, Troy plays sax in my Oingo Boingo tribute. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, he's he's awesome. He's a hell of a musician. Anyway, Very small world. Mutiny Information Cafe. Uh, this is, of course, a Mutiny Transmission, which is a media service division of Mutiny Information Cafe. What will those guys come up with next? Well, you better get your ass down there and find out. See what it's all about. See what all the hubbub is about. See why uh, the MAGA crowd is losing their goddamn mind about oh, that place. Oh, boy. Yeah, man. They, wow, they they got into a, speaking of online fighting, man, they got into a tussle with the Red Caps, man. Whew. Nasty. The Red Caps are coming. The Red Caps are coming. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. Um, what else? What else? Oh, thenugnation.com. We are, of course, here at beautiful Nug Nation Studios in Denver, Colorado. Man, they are working on some cool stuff here. Working on some collabs with uh, some some weed brands. Oh, we got a show. Gordo, did uh, Mikey showed you that uh, that Empire stop motion animation thing, right? Correct. They made so Jake Fairley, who draws our comic, made a little like short like three second like flipbook animation using only a three foot rolling paper by Hempire. It's pretty cool. Check this out. You guys won't be able to see it, but you'll be able to hear the reaction. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, that's probably the wrong one. Anyway, it looks like a roll of toilet paper and they they animated it into something. It's pretty cool. Anyway, we got all sorts of cool stuff coming up. Uh go to the nugnation.com to check out episodes of Potty Talk with Bon Burgundy. You can see the interviews with Redman, Method Man, Jaron Benton and more and uh some of our 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 episodics which are really cool and make sure to check out our music video collab with the one and only Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh man, I was having a good dream. And if you can't get a Wi-Fi signal for some reason, just have your friend play the video over their phone. That should be good enough for you. I was having a good dream. They're lactose. Mwah. Thank you, Breaky Heart. Okay. That might be the last Billy Ray Cyrus joke. We can let that go for a while. I don't I know. Think. It's fun. It, it, it is kind of fun to just continue. Is to that punching down? Is it punching down to, to pick on I poor old Billy a Ray lateral, Cyrus? That's a lateral, to, to, that's a lateral to punch. To make fun of a, a dude that's insanely wealthy? Nah, I, well, think, I think you're all right. But he's also Billy Ray Cyrus. The, the, the affiliation with Nug Nation is kind of a it's it's like a it's a lateral jab, it's a side jab. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like I don't th- I don't think we have to be worried about uh, hurting Billy Ray Cyrus's not, feelings. Well, <laughs> or at least like hurting his career, or or even getting him to notice. I think like does he does he know there's a music video? I am not entirely certain. 
I asked that as a joke. I wasn't expecting that response. No, There's it, a whole story about so that. So this this has been is a, it a run- bootleg music video. Did you just make? No, wait, wait, wait. It's an authorized music video. Okay, you didn't just do it. And no, like, eh. we were hired and paid oh, okay. poorly to do it. Look at Aaron's. Uh, yeah, cup this, there. so this that's, sticker that's that I have on my Cyrus cup, this a is nug. a yeah, this is a Billy Ray Cyrus Ooh. nug. Um, no, we were. What's the opposite of being paid handsomely? We were paid homely for. <laughs> <laughs> To make a, to you make were a paid like an adjunct professor. <laughs> we were, we were, we were technically paid to make a video for Billy Ray Cyrus. You were rationed. We were rationed. <laughs> yeah, um, we received a small stipend to make a to make a music video for Billy Ray Cyrus, and there's there's a a storyline to it. So there was a lot of voiceover stuff, and I did I did the voiceover for all the characters, but his. And he literally recorded his voiceover. Uh, we keep telling guests this. We get like the people listening are like, yeah, 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 we know. But we get to get the reaction of whoever our guest is hearing this. Yeah. He literally phoned in his voiceover. That's not even the worst part. <laughs> he literally phoned it in, and we're like, there's no way the label will let this through. But the label let it through. The label took that video, sent it to billboard they sent it to uh rolling stone like it it dude it got some traction it is the biggest thing i have done in my artistic career and billy ray cyrus couldn't be bothered to plug a microphone in and i don't think it's malicious on his part i think he legitimately just is has been rich for hey man, y'all y'all just need my voice right yeah all right man, well, I'll just... all right, man. Just, uh, here we go my phone getting my voice yeah my, my uh, phone sounds like Elvis, apparently i don't know well, uh, i record silly voices and send it to to to, to miley all the time <laughs> she seems to like it we, we've been over this a million times but the thing that continually blows my mind is that the man has a recording studio in his own house yeah oh yeah I, I wish there was a way to communicate what my eyes have been doing with every new <laughs> bit of information. That was serious optical poptitude right oh there. That was, God. yeah. This is like one of my new favorite parts of the sponsor thing is like repeating that story over and over and over again. To make sure you never is, work with him again. Well, well, uh, well I would totally, oh dude, and we went to his show. To work, to work with him would be a first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to actually work with him. Nice. Yeah. Uh, we will continue not to work with him. <laughs> as we did even in the project that we technically worked with him sort of we worked with his phone anyway uh thenugnation.com check it out <laughs> it's like trash trash shade shade hey watch our little program all right uh, yeah. it is actually an amusing video i would highly recommend you watch no, it no and and from what i understand he's a he's a lovely man he just uh he just <laughs> he hasn't had to do anything for himself in a very long time. Uh, yeah, that's what happens when you're Hannah Montana's dad and you you create what I would say is the stairway to heaven of our time, a little gem called Achy Breaky Heart. Christ. I thought you were going to talk about the new one, his collaboration with Lil Nas it's X. It's on that album. The song that we did yeah. for him is on that album. It's called Angel in My Pocket. Oh, have I you seen, seen that video? Clear. He I starred have, in that video. I have never seen that video, never heard the song, only know about it. The the Lil Nas X thing? Yeah. Yeah, man, that was that was a big story, huh? I just, I saw a, a gif, a gif, a gif, whatever, animated picture uh, that had Lil Nas X and then later Billy Ray Cyrus and then later a horse. 
or maybe it was multiple horses. I didn't pay that much attention. Um, I would like to point out that in the video for that collab, for the remix, he was in a recording studio. He was in a re he even remembered to bring his guitar. Like, he is a functioning member of the music industry. Like, he, he is part, well, not, I mean. Uh, I, I don't know that you can argue he's a functioning member since he did, he did not perform for you when you went to go see him. He has a career that is bookended with functionality. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious, That's dude. <laughs> That is the the apex of a backhanded, <laughs> like not even compliment, statement, a backhanded hey, statement. Hey, man, I can't even get my friends to listen to this show. Billy Ray Cyrus is never going to hear that. That's going to haunt me for the rest of my career. Wait, who's knocking at the fucking door? Billy Ray Cyrus it's Billy like, Ray fucking Cyrus. That's who it is. Hey, man, I've had enough of your goddamn jokes, okay? No, I wrote no, Achy no. Breaky Heart, You're man. breaking my heart over here. You're breaking my achy breaky heart. He wouldn't. He wouldn't show up he would call he, yeah yeah he'd be like listen <laughs> here man if you keep talking about me on your stupid little podcast i'm gonna rip your rip your achy breaky heart right out of your achy breaky chest god damn it i think that is on record that is the longest we've ever gone on about burned that. on it that is fantastic what I mean, about what about type. rocket space studios oh yeah rocket space rehearsal studios in the rhino district of denver 2712 uh larimer street right next to larimer lounge stop in have a beer at the Larimer with my good buddy Mikey Mulligan. And then Mikey. go in and see some of the finest, best-maintained hourly rehearsal spaces, fully equipped, man, and just the nicest staff at the helm. Rocket space, you ain't got to carry shit. You ain't got to carry nothing. Flipside music. Ah, uh, yes. We actually just had Ike in here to help with voiceovers for the new comic. Oh, right on. Yeah, man, it was fun. He actually, we were talking about, so we were trying to figure out what we were going to do with Brian's equipment because my brother had a drum kit and he had a bass guitar and he had some pretty nice guitars. He had lots of like, it's like my brother had didn't have a ton of stuff, but the stuff he had was like nice equipment and video games and shit like that, you know. So we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with his equipment. And we decided we're going to wait until Ransom is old enough and we are just going to give it all to him. Just blow his mind for one birthday. Son, don't listen to this podcast or it's going to ruin the surprise for Christmas. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So just one year when he's old enough, we're just going to give it all to him and blow his mind. So next year when he gets it, he's going to be super, 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 super excited. Super excited. And, um, well, and one of the things I was talking about is I was like, how old? What age are you supposed to start him at? And we're like... You know, and I'm like, and I'm like, what, five, six, something like that. And Tony's like, two, three, get him started. <laughs> of course he was. I was as like, soon as he comes out, snip the cord, yeah, put a guitar. Give in him his some hand. stuff. T Tony's like, Tony's like, we gave a little baby grand piano to my nephew, like at two years old, and just something that he can bang on, make noise on. And Ike was like, actually, I can help you out with some three quarter size equipment that is designed for small children. He's like, I can get you a good deal on it. I could flip side music, man. He has got he has got the hookup on whatever weird, cool, rare crap that you need. Actually, Ben, you might go see him about unloading some of this like kick ass gear that you're because I think he does mm -hmm. consignment as yeah, well. Yeah. Have you done stuff with Ike before? I, I I know of him. I haven't actually been there. Um but it's, it's a cool kind, it's shop. kind of in the hood of where um Glacial Tomb practices. We practice over by uh, where Nice Bike is on South Broadway. Okay. Um, I, so, I mean, I don't know exactly where Flipside is, but I know it's not far from there. It's right. Okay, so there's a business park where blackout screen printing 
and the keep and an embroidery shop and Flipside Music all share the same block. Okay. So it's like your one-stop shop for like shit that you need. And uh, they only carry rad shit. Like because they're a small space and they're not like the big box stores, they only have the space to fit the cool shit that Ike wants to have there. And yeah, and he can special order anything that you want. It's a, it's a boutique style gear shop. Go in, see Ike, tell him the boys sent you. Uh, I think all that's left is the patrons, right? Correct. Gotta give a big shout out to the sweet, generous, awesome, loving, beautiful people who back us via a small monthly monthly contribution on patreon.com slash mfruckus. Your contribution goes to help us do the comic, to put out records, to do this podcast, to go on tour, to get merch printed, to to pay animators and illustrators and, and everybody that we need to pay. Running a band, as Ben knows, is not cheap. And, uh, man, we really appreciate all the help we can get. In exchange, we hook our patrons up with exclusive content, early releases, VIP parties with beer and food, and a whole mess of other stuff. Plus, all the behind-the-scenes gossip. Uh, yeah. Do pa- tell. Do tell. Well, you have to subscribe to find out. <laughs> Patreon.com slash MFRuckus. Now, as promised, we're actually going to talk about music. Uh, man, we went down so many like tight lefts and tight rights and went down so many rabbit holes and it's been such an engrossing conversation and we almost forgot to talk about like the whole reason you're here (laughs) which is you are a pretty well accomplished musician in two bands uh most notably chemists yes and then most recently glacial tomb correct now as i mentioned aside from seeing you at king's as a patron or maybe hanging out doing shows or going to a show the last time we really hung out on the same side of the bar was playing together at the Westwood Music Showcase 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Since then, Chemist has put out how many albums? Uh, I don't even think we had our first one out when we played shows back then. You guys uh, are on your third or fourth one? We, we just one released our third album. Your third um, album. Last July. That sounds right. Yeah, July 7th, I think, last year. And you guys have been, you guys over the, the past several years have just have just really climbed with some some huge strides and have had the opportunity to do some amazing things. So tell me a little bit about how you guys went from where you were to where you are now and what that what that looks like now. What your life is like now playing music professionally. Oh, I mean, I've got uh you know scantily clad uh women and men with giant grape leaves just cooling me all hours of the day. Cool. I thought you were just going to say, like, giant grapes, and I was just imagining the, like, oh, the big muscly rad. dudes with just, like, walking in with, like, grapes the size of cantaloupes and handing them to you. Or scantily clad grapes. I could be, you know, I'm not going to complain. What is what is the <laughs> testicular equivalent of phallic, by the way? Like, if something has a phallic shape to it, what I is it? Testicular. If it, testicular? Be, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought there would be a better word. Just, like... Handing grapes to you in a testicular fashion. Mm, Testacular? (laughs) Testacular. That's a triple word score. So, yeah, tell me me a little bit about uh, Chemist's character arc. (laughs) I do like that idea that we're we're just uh, a character in this fiction of of heavy metal. Uh, Man, honestly, it's been, uh, I, I think, a story that in some ways is not super unique in so much as there's a lot of luck involved you can write the best songs you can write the best music you could have the best management the best agent luck 
drives so much of it. It's being in the right place at the right time. So how did you get lucky? Uh, we were lucky to get lucky. Uh, I mean, I guess it really starts with um, getting on 20 bucks Spin. It's a relatively small label, but a well-respected label. Um, Zach's old death metal band, this is you know from the mid-2000s or so, had put out an album, and Dave at 20 bucks Spin had done the vinyl release of um, that record. And so Zach and Dave had this passing familiarity. We recorded Absolution in 2014, and we didn't have any idea what we were doing. Uh, with the album, with the songwriting, um, we were fortunate enough that uh, we got on the radar <clears throat> Excuse me, of Dave Otero, who oh, yeah. you know, people would know from recording a lot more extreme bands. Of he did an album for us like 100 years yeah, ago, too. right? He's he's known for doing lots of extreme metal. That's you know that's sort of what he's built his reputation on. But he'd seen us and was like, "There's something here. I want to work with you guys." And uh, we were able to go in and record that first album with him, and he made it sound, of course, really good. Everything he does sounds really good. We didn't know anything about shopping it to labels. We sent it to a few places. We had some, you know, Zach and I in particular have been doing this for a long time, so we had some connections, but most of them did not pan out whatsoever. What was the shopping process like? Oh, uh, please, will you listen to this? Consider, please, please, sir. Thank you. Did, did you do it another? in the mail or did you do it via? Oh email no, no, it was. Or? I mean, it was. We're not quite that old school, but it was a lot of you know, like sending Dropbox files or what, uh, what was. I it? mean, I think at that point. Oh, that was kind of before. I mean, Dropbox existed. I don't think it, we were using it but quite it wasn't so thoroughly like, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was like you know, we had it on maybe like a Bandcamp private link or a SoundCloud or something like that, um, or maybe even emailed zip files. I don't know. This would have been six years ago. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. It was also sort of label dependent. Some labels had very specific ways of like you upload the file here, and some were like email us. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zach reached out to Dave and said, "Look, you know, I got this band. I, you know, we're excited about it. It's different from what you do. Would you be interested?" Dave listened to it and was like, "Yeah, I'm down to put this out. Let's see what happens." And I mean, we were all excited because first of all, it's a label. That was exciting, right? Uh, but it was and also it's so label. hard to get a label to notice you. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, and, you know, even though Zach and I had been doing this for a very long time, we hadn't really been in a lot of bands that had made much, you know, of a splash, especially not when it came to heavy metal with clean singing. Neither of us had ever been in bands right. that played anything like that before. So Dave was on board. He released the album and it it did well. It got some uh, attention critically, made decibels, you know, list. I think we got number nine that year. I remember that. Which, you know, we were like, how the, what the fuck? We- to even get mentioned in decibels exactly. is such a huge deal. Um, and, you know, then uh, by the time that album came out, we'd already started writing Hunted. We had done what I think a lot of bands at least try to do. Look at your first album and figure out what you like, what you found most compelling. And try not to listen too much to what critics say. I mean, a good art critic can offer insight, but most people writing for blogs are not. They're trying school- to they're trying to throw, throw shade to get clicks on there. Sure, or they're trying to say nice things that are just like, oh, this reminds me of Black Sabbath. I love it. Well, fuck, that doesn't help me at all. But we tried to hone in on what we found compelling, which was you know the vocals, the interplay of harsh and clean vocals harmonized guitar lines we had just started doing that on the first record and we were like look we love iron maiden we love thin lizzie we love judas priest why don't we lean into this and so we'd already started writing hunted by the time absolution was getting a little bit of acclaim and then we released hunted in october of 2016 and we got album of the year at decibel 
Rolling Stone named it one of the top ten albums of the year. That's all fucking of this stuff. insane, dude. And I mean, I remember getting the text from David Twenty Bucks Spin saying, "You can't tell anyone yet, but you guys got the album of the year." And we were like, "What the fuck?" Like we're all texting each other, like, "What the fuck? What does this mean? Like, do people like us?" <laughs> yeah. And I remember I called my parents. They, uh, th- th- so they were living in Mississippi. And they were like, I'm about to go to bed. And I was all jazzed and stuff. And they're like, oh, are you, are you drunk? Like, what's, And I was like, no, 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 this really exciting thing. Uh, we got this album of the year and Decibel. And they kind of knew what Decibel was. And they were really excited. And they're like, well, what's going to change? And I was like, I mean, it's heavy metal. Probably nothing. But it's going to be cool. <laughs> and everything changed. I mean, it's yeah. not like we got rich and went out and bought Bentleys. No, but that legitimized you guys Absolutely. in a lot of ways. Because yeah. of that, we got the Decibel tour the next year with Enslaved, Wolves in the Throne Room, and uh, Mercury. Uh, earlier that uh, that year, we had uh, the rather the year. Um, oh wait, no, it was the year after we did. I, fuck, I don't know. So many years have passed. Somewhere in there, we did the Decibel tour. That was last year. Yes, 2017, we toured with Oathbreaker and Jay Jail. That was our first sort of actual tour. We'd done like five to seven day runs on our own. The way that a lot of bands, when you're first getting started, you do. Will someone book us? Please right. book us. You know, oh, I have a friend that lives in the city. I think they'll set it up. Um, you know, by the time uh, 2017 rolled around, we got an agent. Um, we had European representation, which wound up not working out. But now we have new European representation, which is good. Um, you know, like we had bigger labels coming and knocking at the door. Right. And like we hired uh, you know, a lawyer. <laughs> like you have to get a lawyer? Oh, shit. We don't know how to read a contract. Right. We can't read. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm sorry, I can't read, but everyone else is pretty good at it. Um, but all of a sudden, things became very real, um, and we had to sort of make sense of that shift because I think a lot of people start playing music or doing anything creatively with the idea that, like, this is how I'll express myself, and then the other part of me is how I will exist in the real world. And I'll get a job. It might be a job I hate, but I have music. And suddenly the sort of delineation between those two things became a little bit less clear. Right. Um, And as we've moved forward, we've been very fortunate for that delineation to become increasingly sort of muddled. Um, You know, to be able to, in my case, uh, you know, stop teaching and just do this, like it's, you know, it's a a month to month kind of thing. And like, hopefully people are buying records and merch and we have to tour kind of thing. But it's, it certainly is the fact that the right people found it found uh, that they enjoyed it, found meaning in it. Whether- well, and the industry changed for the genre as well. There, sure. There, there's been, a, I don't know how many years ago, it was either two or three years ago, Spotify announced that heavy metal had replaced pop music. Like, assen- like essentially that, that heavy metal had become worldwide the new most popular genre of music in the world. Like, and so you started seeing yeah. so many more of the, like, you almost started seeing the return of not necessarily arena rock, yeah. but you start, started seeing the return of the prominence, not just of, of heavy metal, but like underground extreme heavy metal. Like you, you would not have necessarily seen Doom be as popular as it is now. Yeah, it is a weird thing where Doom, I mean... A lot of the bands that are doing well, my band included, are what I would probably call like doom adjacent. Like, you know, we may have initially started out as sounding pretty Sabbathy or in some other cases Candlemassy, 
now like we sound uh, we sound like Iron Maiden if you take the 45 and you put it on 33 RPMs. Right. Um, well, and you guys, you guys time, do have you guys do have something. When I heard Absolution, uh, I immediately thought, and I think I sent you a message. It was probably when you were still on on uh, Facebook, and I think I sent you a mm-hmm. message right after, like while I was listening to it. And just I remember not only being so impressed with the playing and the songwriting, but I was so impressed with, and please don't take this the wrong way, but how commercially viable it was. What the fuck? God no, damn it! No, I no, mean, dude. It, and, <laughs> and that was that was something that I that I got from from listening to you guys on record. You sure, know, I mean, yeah. I had seen you play, and you guys were loud as fuck, and you yeah. you know you were a metal band. You know, mm-hmm, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't subcategorize you. But but listening to you on on your album, I was like, what is what stands apart with these guys is just at like I this like so much of of doom is stuff that like almost has this like oh there's a vetting process for you to get in here and like this like if you're not initiated to the genre like yeah. th- there's no way you're going to be included in this circle. But it came across to me as being something that was like this has the potential to reach people outside this very uh, tribal genre. Sure. You know, you can, you can reach a much broader audience with this music. I mean, part of that was intentional in so much as Zach and I had always played in death metal bands. Right. And we knew that with the exception of like Cannibal Corpse and the Black Dahlia Murder, if you play death metal, you are really narrowing your potential on yourself. Like, and Cannibal Corpse, like, really, the the only reason that they have risen to such prominence is because they're fucking Cannibal Corpse, right. and they're they're almost a mascot for the yeah, genre. Yeah, absolutely. They, they're the exception to the exception to the rule. Like, right. they're, they're such an outlier. The OG. Yep. And Jim Carrey loves them. Right? I mean, that that Ace Ventura spot, everybody knows that. Oh yeah, that's so good. So for us, it was a matter of like, we like other kinds of music. Why don't we try other kinds of music? And it can right. still be metal. And we can still have the death metal influence, the black metal influence in more subtle ways. Like, we've never really leaned into individually, and then this was true of the band as well, these, you know, more melodic influences. We don't have to be afraid of writing a song. Mm-hmm. Like, the first song where we felt like we were like, oh, yeah, that's a song, is kind of ironically Hunted, which is 13 and a half minutes long. But if you pull it apart, it's a song. It's it's a classic the intro, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, outro. It's got songwriting structure. It's just too. that every section is like four minutes long. Right. Um, and that's but that's the kind of thing that came naturally by us, you know, not only leaning into these influences, but also playing more, touring more, and being like, you know, these things resonate with people. And if as long as they're legitimate representations of us creatively. Why wouldn't we do that? Why would we try to like alienate ourselves from potential fans? Which there are a lot of bands who deliberately alienate yeah. themselves. And, and you know, for some people, that's how they find creative satisfaction, and that's fine. By trolling their, <laughs> by trolling their fans. You know, whatever floats your boat, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, in my case, and I can I can say this for all four of us. You know, when you play a song and someone comes up to you afterwards, um, actually, I, I'll give you a specific example of this. A good friend of mine who served in the military for many years. Uh, and we actually met each other at, I think it was our first Black Sky. We played two Black Skies. The first one came up, introduced himself, and he was like, I want you to know that the song The Bereaved, not your first album, 
really helped me through my time in Afghanistan, and like it helps me when I have you know sort of PTSD flashbacks. That's incredible. and I was like, holy shit, what? Like a thing we made. Why did you have to lay that on me? That's such it, a huge thing. And like, and we've been friends for years ever since. That's incredible. shout out Tony. What's up, man? Yeah. Uh, and like, so that sort of thing, like, not like we're trying to just write things to make people feel, but if these are things that make us feel, and like we really tap into you know a sort of honest emotional creativity for this and it resonates with other people and it makes other people's lives hopefully brighter for just like a minute or two well in our case 13 and a half minutes maybe uh you know we've leaned into that we've tried to embrace that in the most authentic way and i think that's been part of why we've continued to reach more people and you know experience the success is that we're not afraid to write songs Right. And I'm not saying other bands necessarily are, but it's something that we intentionally want to get better at. We want to get better at all of our instruments. Um, and we want to try to write the kind of music that we would want to hear. Well, and you're not putting uh, arbitrary limits on yourself. It yeah, absolutely. Like. I and, mean, and, and I mean, it is a service position. People forget this. And there is, you know, there's there's this almost disdain for what is perceived as pandering. But it's like if you are trying to serve people while you know remaining uh in integrity with with your values and yeah. remaining in integrity with whatever your creative voice may be whatever it is i don't think that there's anything wrong with seeking to serve people and seeking to to bring value into people's lives i think that that's it's that that's a measurable difference between successful artists and and less successful artists yeah i think it's also a reflection of an attitude towards art that existed for a very long time in human society that art can transcend art can you know speak to multiple experiences art can be valued right and that somewhere in the last 200 years or so we've sort of separated um that sort of like academic notion of art from art as commercial product Right. And we say that if people are making money doing it, that they've sold out, that they have it must you know, sold their soul for the devil. Yeah. Or, yeah, like they're compromising their values. Like, do you really think that the Renaissance painters hated what they did? No, they loved what they were doing and it spoke to, right. you know, people that saw it. There's These two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think for a long time in my life, and it's probably true for a lot of people, I, like, I very much embrace the idea that they were mutually, mutually exclusive. Good art can't be for the masses. Right. There's, you know, the idea that popular music, film, TV, literature, whatever, is just direct, put out by the corporate machine. Like, no, actually, it doesn't have to be that. It can be that. There is stuff that is written, you know, specifically to just sort of fill one's stomach for a little bit. But even that has value to oh, it. Oh, it absolutely even, does. Even pop music, even like manufactured pop music has has uh, has redeemable qualities to it. It's it, like, you know, I've got a soft spot for uh you know, 80s pop music. Yeah. Whitney Houston, Madonna, all that shit. It it feels a well-crafted song oh, is a well-crafted song. Absolutely. absolutely. I'm reminded of a thing Dave Otero uh said to me uh sometime last year. He's like every metalhead uh at some point he said, "Yeah, well maybe I'll just fucking sell out and write pop songs." He's like, "Fuck you." 
if you could, you would. You right. can't. That's why you haven't. Right. Because the people that write that stuff are not just sitting around dicking around with a guitar for 30 seconds and saying, I got it. These are people They've that honed are. They've their craft. They, they understand not only the side of crafting the song, but the side of production. They understand how the, the paradigms around producing music have changed. They keep up with that. Someone like Mark Ronson, for instance, who has had his hands on so many number one hits for many years. He's not just falling ass backwards into it. He's got so much talent, mm -hmm. and he has, in many ways, found himself in a very fortunate position to be able to use that talent and make a shit ton of money and make very popular songs. But those songs aren't just garbage that he throws away. Right. Like For lots of people, those songs mean something. There seems to be a, um, a contempt for competence hierarchies. Yeah, you there's know. no this whole like you know highbrow lowbrow thing. It, it it never really made a whole lot of sense to me. There's there, I would say that many, if not most, of the artists who have risen to, like, have risen to the heights of success, many, if not most, are deservedly there. Many, if not most, are there because they are talented, because they work hard, because they they have practiced and mm -hmm. they have honed their craft and they and and they have risen to where they need to be. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that, but but I think that there's this like, you know, when you're part of the people at the bottom of the hierarchy who are stacking up at the bottom, mm -hmm. there there is this natural human tendency to want to displace your inadequacy. And go, why am I here and they're up there? And instead of saying, maybe I should practice more, maybe I should work on songwriting, maybe I should go to more shows, you know, it must be because the corporate machine is only noticing bands that make money and get the chicks to take off their clothes and blah, blah, blah. I went and um, me and Ty and Logan went and saw the ZZ Top documentary. Mm -hmm. uh, they did it one night only. I was surprised at the low turnout. But what I was taken by the most was how much Billy Gibbons specifically um, stretches himself and puts himself in situations where he grows as an entertainer. Like he talks about after they did their first few albums, they went on a break while uh, Frank Beard got clean and Billy Gibbons just went and traveled around and like hung out in the punk scene in the UK for a while and uh, like got really into like transcendental meditation and all these different like went out and sought out different stuff. And you mm -hmm. can hear on albums that may not be their most popular albums and they're not necessarily my favorite albums of ZZ Tops. You can hear the influences of experimental fringe alternative yeah. music and Absolutely. what they did. And then that led them to create Eliminator, which is their biggest commercial success. And... It is a straight blues rock album or whatever, you know, sure. ZZ Top created that that style of music, arguably. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, out of out of the cross-pollination of everything that they were into, but so much of that was informed by them deliberately going out and seeking out things that were outside of the, the canon of their contemporaries. Absolutely. And um, they still do that. There was uh, the they did the cover of there was some like YouTube hip hop star who did that like twenty five lighters on my dresser yes sir that, yeah twenty five lighters on my dresser yes 
CZ Top saw that on YouTube and they're like, man, we should do that. That seems really cool. And they did their own version of that. And granted, it's, you know, it's not their biggest thing, but that willingness to experiment and that willingness to like step out of your comfort zone and try things and yeah. hone your craft and stay stay up to speed with what's going on in the world instead of cursing the damn kids yeah. for not getting it. Well, and also for being honest in what they're doing. Like, right. You know, when you put out an album that doesn't do that well, which for ZZ Top is still selling, you know, however many millions of albums. Right. Um, I think that the important thing is like, well, did you take a stab at something, you know, honest and new? Well, then, you know, it doesn't always land. And that goes back to that luck thing. Like, uh, fuck, I'm trying to think. Uh, like Afterburner, which like has some songs that are well-known, but it's not nearly as well-known. Afterburner is, like, super synth-heavy. Yeah. It's got, like, a lot of... It, it was a departure for yeah. for sure. And then I cannot think of what... They released a third one. I don't know if it was the next one or they skipped one. And, one, and it was supposed to be, like, the third of the trilogy. And, like, it fucking tanked. But... Had they released it at a different time? What if they had released Afterburner at the time that they released? Um, oh Jesus Christ, my mind just went blank. Eliminator. Eliminator. Would, would Afterburner have been the Eliminator given the right time? Right. Who fucking knows? Um, who knows? How and I think that's the other part it. about that idea of you know people who haven't experienced success. And this is coming from someone whose success, just to contextualize, really is like important and meaningful, and I enjoy it. But it's you know like. I didn't buy a house. The only reason I have I own my car outright is because of a hailstorm. Well, it's important and meaningful and significant right. to you but, and to your bandmates. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to downplay that, but just someone who has gotten a little bit above that level who can see what it, you know, is still keenly aware of about where I came from and sees how far there is yet to go. Um, to say that, you know, yes, there are people that are insanely talented in everything, but they're also all those insanely talented people who weren't fortunate enough to have the right sound at the right time listened to by the right person who just never, I mean, think about how many stories we have of great seventies rock bands that we're all just now discovering because right. they sounded too much like grand funk at the time or, or they didn't a band sound called enough death like, or like a band called death. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, pentagram. Yeah. Well, well, also Bobby Liebling with a piece of shit. Yeah. So. Yeah. We could, we could Total debate, piece of shit. we could debate pentagram. Like, uh, I don't know. When I look at the Pentagram story, like that documentary painted a certain picture, but... Oh, my God. When I found out who he really was, I was like, this fucking documentary sold me a version of this man that is not real. Well, it's like, it's, it's, it, same but different is Story of Anvil. You know, oh, you yeah. go, oh, you yeah. go, how unfortunate for Anvil. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, the bands that they were on that tour with mm -hmm. were better bands. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're... Harder working in smarter ways. Right. And, man, there's going to be no nice way to say this. I went on the Monsters of Rock cruise with my dad. The Canadian heavy music industry is different. Mm -hmm. It has a different threshold, especially in the 80s and 90s. There are a lot of bands. So the Monsters of Rock cruise is composed of bands from all over the world that that are popular in that genre. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and it, it would be dismissive to call it like the hair metal world because it's not just that, you know. Right, it's right. bands like Queensryche and Halloween and Doro. Sure. And there was, you know, and they're all at these varying levels of success and notoriety. But all the Canadian bands, Anvil, um, 
oh, what was the other one? The uh, the Killer Dwarfs, and uh, there was like there was like a handful of Canadian bands on mm-hmm. there that were just simply not as good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's because there's greater accessibility for bands in the c- Canadian market. Yeah. I don't I don't know what it is specifically, but right. it was it was a trend that I noticed between these bands. Sure, yeah. And I think that Anvil had reached a level of popularity in Canada, mm-hmm. but couldn't compete in in the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah. You know, and and you see that documentary, and you go, "Those guys got robbed." Oh yeah, well, dude, at the the last shot when they actually played to the big crowd, I cried. I was like, "Oh my god, they get, they finally got their moment." Thirty years yeah. later, but then you you listen to their albums and you play with them, and you're like, "Oh yeah," and also it's you like, find out that like, I don't remember which one it might be Lips is kind of an asshole. He's a little bit of an asshole. Yeah, he's a little like, bit of an asshole. I think I I also think that he's. He's got, you know, he's somewhere on the spectrum. I think he's oh, got yeah, people yeah. problems a seems little bit. Like yeah. You know, that was that was the impression I got through mm-hmm. working with. He seems to have some emotional regulatory issues. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I mean, he wasn't mean or anything when I dealt with him, but he definitely had an attitude that I, I felt was not justified considering his, his yeah. station. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's... I can, and th- this is one of the things that's that I think has been hardest in in my career is in dealing with the the opportunities that I wish we had that we did not. Mm-hmm. I am able to, with an analytical mind, look at the exact reasons why we are not where I would like to be. Sure, and I can listen to records that we've done, and I've and I can go, you know. I understand why this didn't do as well as it did. I understand why this didn't resonate with people. I understand why labels passed on it. I understand why maybe the branding may not be the coherent thing that somebody's looking for. Like, I get it. Yeah. And that's a hard, sobering reality to look at your stuff and go, go, you know what? It just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a lot of fun doing it, but where we are now compared to where we were back when... It you know it's like we would sit there and go why are all these bands getting this opportunity and we're not it's like well because those bands deserve that opportunity sure and we have not earned it yet I think what you're saying there too is interesting to me because that's a very mature perspective to have um, to like stand back and and sort of as best you can objectively evaluate your art and what you've done in terms of creating and promoting and sharing that art. And like, for how much of our lives are we completely unwilling to do that? Well, I, I'm like, a firm. My, bel- my shit does not stink. God damn it! Right? It's it's someone else, and it's like, um, you know, I learned several years ago, around the time that I turned thirty and I started to get my shit together, mm-hmm. I started to learn about the power of personal responsibility, and and even if even if it's not necessarily true that we're responsible for everything that goes on in our lives when we there there's some quote that's like i don't know if we're responsible for everything but i know that when you act like you are things begin to change and it hasn't been an overnight thing but as soon as i t- started taking responsibility for where i was and where i was going mm-hmm. things did happen for us yeah. you know we managed to create some opportunity you know we're not 
we're not where you guys are at. We're not where where Havoc is at. We're not where Speed Wolf got to. You know, and other contemporaries of sure. ours, people. We came up at the same time. And granted, there are aspects of it that we're we're in a different genre. We're probably a little hard, harder to pin down necessarily. Mm-hmm. But when I started taking responsibility for the the quality of our work, and I started taking responsibility for like my output and how I was showing up every day. Things changed, and they started to change very rapidly. Yeah. I I think that the willingness to, like, recognize those moments, like, like where you are and being honest about, you know, for whatever reason, this is where we are, and this is what we can do about it. Like, there's always going to be some stuff that's out of your hands. Like, Right. What do you have control over? Right. You have control over how hard you work. You have control over you know, how much time you're putting into songwriting. You have control over the amount of... You know, resources, financial or otherwise, that you're willing to put into a project. So, whether it's something like where you're going to go record, I think that's a good example of something that, and this doesn't necessarily apply to our bands, but for a lot of bands, that's the story of like, we're going to go out there, we're going to get a demo, and we're going to get signed. That has never fucking worked. That's not how it's going to The, the nine bands that work for you going in your garage and setting up a four track and then sending that out is fucking a waste of time right work smart like yes work hard but also work smart you don't have well, the money to get a good recording then don't blow your four hundred dollars now sit on it for another six or eight months and get something that sounds now you can good. you can circulate those demos amongst oh, yeah, your, yeah. your network and this is something that is that is understated a lot is be fun to play with absolutely you know so much like what you have talked about about your career, what I heard over and over again is something I harp on. And those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, and those of you guys and gals who are in bands who listen and listen to this for the little nuggets of, of wisdom that we pass along once in a while from our years of fucking up, pay attention because I harp on this all the fucking time is it is all relationships. And so much of what happened for you guys was because of relationships. Mm-hmm. Your relationships with with people that you knew from previous bands, your relationship with Dave Otero, Dave Otero's relationships with other people, just yes. being able to say, hey, like this podcast, for example, I'm able to call you because we have a relationship mm-hmm. because we've never big-timed each other. We've never been unkind to each other. And even though we are not the closest friends in the world, we've always been... We've always been polite and gracious and friendly to one another, right? Absolutely. And so I can call you up or call Dave Sanchez up or any number of the other people that we've had on this show or have coming up on the show simply because of being cool, mm-hmm. simply because of being cool to play with. It's like we teach kids this, like, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. It's like, well, what does that mean? What it means is you're going to be playing a lot of games in your life, and it's not about winning those games and dominating people. It's about being invited back to play the next game. Absolutely. It's about being an enjoyable playmate. And so much of that, like, God, I think of how many years I spent just trying to dominate or outdo people or being snotty in some way or mm-hmm. just being a cocksucker, you know, <laughs> really just being a cocksucker, just like only concerned with my own self uh, gratification and self aggrandizement rather than going, Hey man, maybe the reason I feel outcast by this group of people is they're all friends and I'm being a fucking asshole. Yeah. I, I think that reputation is something that reputation and the fact that this is a long game. Oh, yeah. Two things that um, 
we don't realize as young musicians and until someone tells us or we happen to have the breakthrough on but generally someone needs to tell us like it's easy to just be so myopic about the whole thing you've got your blinders on and at the end of the tunnel is that ill-defined singular goal of making, making it. it boy have we talked about this a bunch or what right. gordo the moment you realize Can that you hear making my head it, shaking <laughs> audibly i felt it in my heart <laughs> the moment you realize that this you know every overnight success story for one of those there's a thousand tried and failed and gave up or tried and tried and tried and never made it and that you're probably going to be that and that's okay if you're doing something that you find meaningful and that you're not just the act of creating music but like are you making friendships making friendships that yeah, yeah creating friendships creating fr- making like friendships yeah, yeah making friends are you having fun are you adding value to someone's yeah, life right and are you considering the ecology of their life system you know you hear about bands breaking up because it's like you know, there's the old the old meme, which is like, oh, fucking nothing kills a band faster than than wives and babies. It's like, well, maybe it's because someone wanted to go and do the natural thing and have a family. I get tired which, of slumming it for you yeah. Know? Which, by the way, is the greatest thing I've ever done with my life. Having a family is the mm-hmm. greatest thing I've ever done. And and when Ty was starting to have his family, I initially had contempt for it. Mm-hmm. I initially was like, why would you want to tie yourself down when we could be going on tour and da 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 and 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 I had personal battles when I would I would be in relationships and it would be like, well, I want a relationship and I want to be close and I want to have this natural connection, but don't get too close because I don't want to be tied down and I want to go on tour and I want to be yeah. independent and do my yeah. own thing and and so there's all the conflict arising with that and failed relationships and it's like it's like, dude, maybe the reason that relationships and children end bands is because we're not willing to accommodate mm-hmm. people being people and having a fucking life system, dude. And the band will probably be better if it's not, you know, at the heart of every single moment of every single day in the lives of all of its members. Right. A band, no matter how good, like I'm fortunate to have not just one but two bands where I really enjoy creating with the people in those bands. Right. And with Chemist especially, I've been doing that band for so long. Those guys are my brothers. And as happens with brothers, you will fight. You will not get along. You will disagree about what the new album should sound like or what the new shirt design should be. But you see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture means it's not just about this song, this album, this argument. It's about the lives of these four people creating stuff. And if these four people creating stuff have lives they find satisfying, including what they do in the band, the band will be stronger. That's why we quit using subs. Like we we used to, we had a discussion several years ago, and and I'm glad we did do this because it allowed us to take advantage of some opportunities. And I've mentioned this before, but it it, it allowed us to take advantage of some opportunities. Like our our first couple tours to Europe, we had to bring subs because some people were just unable to go. Mm-hmm. But now that we've gotten our foot in the door there, we are done with subs. Because at the end of the day, we want to play with each other. You know, it's yeah. not about that amorphous concept of making it. Mm-hmm. It's about, I love these individuals so much, and I enjoy creating with them so much that I am willing to sacrifice opportunity. Sure. Uh, for the sake of just being with those people. And it's like, it's like you want to get married? You want to go have kids? Have 50 kids, man. Go do it. It's the most natural thing in the world. Yeah. You know, feel like, a, you know, add this other element to your life. 
You know, I want you to have all the riches and 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 you know, there's just so much suffering in life. Oh yeah. There's so it's much It's mostly suffering. It's primarily suffering. Yeah. And trying to figure out ways to ameliorate suffering. Absolutely. Suffering. And part of the way that we ameliorate suffering is we create art for people. Mm-hmm. You know? And that helps ameliorate our own suffering while creating it at the same time. It's a really weird thing. Because it's like being in a band, especially when it's your band, you know, as the three of us, like our bands, we're the guys who suffer, you know? It's like, I mean, seriously, I suffer a great deal over my band. But... The re- great, great deal. A great, great deal. I, 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 a lot. And, but it's only because it's in such, like, that suffering is indirect. It's the shadow of the brightness that comes from traveling the world and playing music with the people I love the sure. most. Absolutely. You know? I, I think um, to sort of tie this back to what we were talking about, you asked, you know, how has Chemist gotten to this point? Um, one of the things is uh, is really just um, making the decisions that are uh, that feel right and honest for ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, and that is involved, you know, uh, maybe turning down record deals or signing record deals or uh, you know releasing uh, albums uh, or like putting out singles between albums because we still have this sort of creative wellspring that, that we're able to tap into and it's not just about well we should put music out so people don't forget who we are it's like this is an integral part of that holistic notion of happiness and uh, like you know three of us are married that that only helps you know like my wife is right. incredibly supportive and excited and she knows what happens she's seen what happens if I don't make music I like all the bad stuff gets bottled up and like I I just sort of shut down and I like become very sort of introspective in a not good way. And so for that music to be good, our lives have to be strong and well-rounded. Um, and for our lives to be strong and well-rounded, we have to be able to create that music. Right. And, 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 and yeah, you, you called attention to that, you know, you're, your wife knows what happens if you don't play music and you know what happens to the music mm-hmm. if you don't have a supportive relationship. Our wives know what happens to us when we don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and, 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 and that's the thing is, is there, was, there was contention initially with Sarah and I. You know, I'm fortunate in the sense that like her brother was the drummer for Speedwolf and is the drummer for Axe Slasher. You yeah, know, like yeah. she gets it, but it's a different thing to be in a relationship with Absol- someone it like absolutely that. Absolutely is. And it's so there has been contention. Mm-hmm. There has been, you know, there's those feelings of lack, like one thing is pulling away from the other. And we have to fight about it. Yeah. But be willing to have the fight instead of instead of leaving. Yeah. Have the fight, work it out hash it out, have a hundred fights mm-hmm. so you don't have to have the one fight that ends it all yeah, and, yeah. and drives you into nihilism and insanity. You know, like we have had those fights and now we're at this point in our relationship where we're not absolved of any work, you know, mm-hmm. at, at all. And we sure. don't, it's not like we don't fight, but she understands that I need to go make music. I need to go play with my friends. I need to come do this podcast every week. I need to create. I need to do my work. Mm-hmm. And I understand that I cannot let it be all-consuming. Yes, absolutely. And that if I don't shut that off at home and talk to her about something else, yeah, then then I'm being unfair. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, you know, and and it's and it's and it creates inequality in the relationship. It does. I, you know, and the ability to talk about stuff outside of the band, I think that also happens should happen in the band too, right? Like being friends with the people you play music with is such an underrated thing. Uh, people, I think, get the idea that like well, we are a unit and we create things, but it doesn't have to transcend those boundaries. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with those people. Sometimes you are, um, but like the idea of showing up at practice and only knowing the stuff about those people that happens in that practice room is incredibly unsatisfying to me. Oh yeah. Like oh, I don't yeah. have to know everything yeah. about their waking moments 365 days a year, but like I do want to know like yeah, you know, how's work been or you know, how's the kid doing? You know, I know she was sick last week. Right. That's great to hear, man. Or they'll ask, you know, like how's my wife doing? I'm like, "Oh, you know, it's good. Did you she got this job, you know, blah blah blah, whatever." Um because the way that those pieces of your life fit together can't just be clean cut slices of a pie chart. Oh yeah. They have to intermingle. I've seen my bandmates check out when I have you know that song like uh and then I go and ruin it all by saying something stupid like I love you. <laughs> yeah. It's like but it's like and then I go and spoil it all by talking about band business. You know, yeah. it's it's like or ideas that I'm working on or something mm -hmm. like that. It's like Man, we were having a really nice drink. We were, you know, going to a movie or we were we were just hanging out, telling jokes and having a conversation and you had to go and talk about the writing schedule or, yeah. or the studio or gigs or the marketing approach or or strategies or, or or whatever. And I and I I'm super guilty of that. I just get really excited about sure. about these things. But I've watched it happen. Mm -hmm. And the part the part that the guys seemed to like the most, it like when we would go rehearse at Rocket Space, was the half hour, 45 minutes beforehand when we would be sitting having a drink at at the Lar at Larimer sure, and yeah. talking. Yeah. You know, and talking about some movie we watched or some band we went and saw or, or how things are going at home. And it's just like, you know, I would come in and just bulldoze the conversation with just just more band bullshit yeah you know it's like it's like dude this isn't even fun anymore yeah you know and so i, I i've had to work on it i'm still working on it it's, it's a major work in right. progress it's but. a balance yeah that's a very good point too that like the further along you get in this the more it there is business stuff and you have to be willing to handle it and handle it collectively like for us we always if it's just small stuff, like we will address band business in the middle of practice. We just allocate 15 to 30 minutes and we'll talk through, all right, do we need to order merch? What's going on with tour? Does the van need, you know, whatever, that kind of stuff. Right. If it's bigger stuff, we will, you know, allocate two hours or whatever we need to do. If it's, we got to go over a contract, cool. We're going to go get dinner. Four of us are going to sit down with a pizza and we're going to talk through this thing. Right. And it's not going to be fun. We don't love doing it. But it allows us to do the other stuff that we do love, which right. is getting on stage and playing the music that we created. And having fun, yeah. And acknowledging that nothing – along with the idea of making it, the idea that like art can, should only exist for the sake of creating art um, and that any time business comes into creating art, creating music, that it like corrupts it is, to me, a, a ridiculous fallacy. Like. Everything you do is going to have some sort of connection to the economy. The more successful you are, the stronger that connection is. Be realistic about it. Unless you're going to just sit in your bedroom and make recordings for yourself, there's going to be business side to it. Right. And being willing to 
dive into that with people that you love and respect makes that a lot easier and you make better decisions. And one of the reasons that we've been successful is that we're honest with each other about like our feelings about say, you know, the terms in a record contract or, you know, negotiating something for like an endorsement deal. And like, this is cool. This is bullshit. And this is why, and that we're always all willing to hear each other out. Cause we, none of us want to have that business conversation in the first place, but we know that if we do this smart, we will continue to be in an okay place. Nothing, no idea is so precious that it's not worth tearing apart. Nobody's opinion is worth anybody else's or worth more than anybody else's opinion. So let's work through this shit together and like respect and appreciate the time that we have to do that. Because the fact that we're even having this conversation about whatever X, Y, and Z are is something that we never expected. Right. Let's let's take a moment and appreciate that. And we we regularly do where we go, look, this is getting kind of heavy, but like, can we appreciate that we never thought we would talk about this? And we're like, yeah, it's pretty fucking rad, right? Right. Like, it's 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 annoying, but we're sitting here talking about a record contract. Exactly. You know, God, how many people would kill to be dealing with this headache right now? Right. Yeah. And and so, you know. Yes, there's this, this to, to go back to the original question a little bit, there's this element of luck, but also there's this element of working working as hard as possible in the smartest way possible. Don't bash your head against a wall. If that wall's not giving, there's another way around. Right. You're, you're positioning yourself to be able to act in it to be act to, to act methodically and optimally when luck presents itself. Yes. Not if, when, when luck presents itself, because it does opportunities present themselves all the time and you just need to be able to have your house in order when it's time to yes. take advantage of those exactly like we've had opportunities for tours that we've had to turn down and they've been like hard to turn down We're like god I, oh, I, like we can't do this we'll, like we'll come back and we'll all get divorced right it's not an option but fuck that would be such a good tour or, oh my god if we could only do that festival or whatever but you recognize that it's if you get one opportunity like that, because we're not, it's not like we're getting an opportunity to star in a Hollywood movie. That probably wouldn't come again. But these are opportunities that if we're smart and we have a good reputation for being real people that work hard and that are worth working with, it'll come around again. There are thousands of albums made every year. There are thousands of shows every year. There are thousands of tours and yeah. thousands of festivals every year. Ma like statistically, like just in terms of probability, the chances that if one opportunity came to you or two opportunities came to you, three, four, and five opportunities will come to you. Yeah. As long as, you know, you don't completely fucking blow it. Yeah. By doing yeah, exactly. something by doing something stupid, like, you know, being a Louis C.K. or something yes, like exactly, that. Exactly, right? You know. Uh it, you're you're probably you're you're probably gonna have opportunities come your way again. Uh I think that's a really good place to stop, man. That sounds good to me, brother. Um, ben, I really appreciate you coming on, man. It has been a very informative and enlightening and uplifting and challenging and, and just, just a valuable conversation. And um, I hope to see more of you around, man. And I just want to say it has been very personably, uh, personally satisfying to watch you succeed. Thank you so much. Because I like you a lot. I respect you a lot. You got a great band, and uh, and man, it's just you know, it's I, I said this to Dave last uh, last podcast we did with him. I love 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 watching good people do well. So thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to me, man. I know it's been a it's been a long conversation and it's hot in here, and uh, 
and it, like Gordo and I both, thank you a lot, man. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, it's thank awesome. you all for having me, man. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it's this, awesome. and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And yes, now we're all best friends for life. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. So, <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for everything that you guys do to keep this podcast afloat. Uh, next week, I don't know who we've got next week, but I already said I was going to stop announcing guests anyway because they don't show up. <laughs> so so uh we're actually gonna get off the air and no, then it, it, uh, just, it gives too much away yeah it gives ah cliffhanger our next guest is interesting <laughs> i don't know i got nothing anyway uh yeah see you guys next week and um yeah we're gonna we're gonna get some people in we're gonna do some voiceovers for the new comic so that should be fun we'll see if anybody shows up i hope they do Anyway, uh, this has been the motherfucking podcast. I'm Aaron Howell. Gordo. We're here with Ben Hutcherson from Chemist and Glacial Tomb. And I feel bad that we didn't really talk about Glacial Tomb much, but we went on so many other... That's so fine. Other people, dro- you, they can Google it. Go to the Facebook, the so band yeah, where, camp, p- where can people find you? Where can people uh, find everything? Literally everywhere you can find every other band. Look up Glacial Tomb, two words. Uh, we have a self-titled album and an EP that are out uh, and you know uh, we're writing new stuff, and we got new members. Blah blah blah. You can find it all out on the interweb. Go to Ask Jeeves and type in Glacial Tomb. <laughs> Ask Jeeves. Oh, what uh, about what about one for the? Oh homies? yeah. Uh, so every week we do this one for the homies shout out, which is it started out just us. We would give shout outs to friends, bands, and things like that. I think we've probably done chemists on an episode actually, um, but for guests. We generally just give you the opportunity to uh, give a shout out to a band that you think deserves a little extra love and we'll find one, whatever song you think we should put on, we'll put it at the end of the episode so that people can listen to it while they're uh, thinking about what podcast they want to listen to next. Oh, the pressure's on. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, they should know all the good bands in Denver and there's such there's enough press out there that, that links all of them together. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach up, even though we talked some shit on it, I'm going to reach up to the Great White North and I'm going to send this shout out to my boys in Wake. They are cool. a grind band uh, from Calgary or Edmonton. I can't remember which one. Uh, they're all the same up there, you know, somewhere <laughs> up there. Uh, oh, whoa. We're well, going to get some letters let's from be the clear, Canadians. Those, those two cities are like two hours apart is what I mean. Not like all Canadian cities are the same. Like they're pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're a fantastic band. Uh, and they're about to uh, record a new album with Dave Otero. Their last album came out on Translation Loss. Uh, it's called Misery Rights. Uh, they're awesome. And uh, I don't know. They might have uh, a guest guitar solo on the new album. I don't know anything about it, though. Okay, cool. So we're going to play something by Wake here at the end of the episode. Again, this is the motherfucking podcast. I'm Aaron. Gordo. Bye. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.
You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. 